The following program is an MLWRadio.com production. All systems operating within normal design parameters. Welcome to WHW Monday. Tony Schiavone and Conrad Thompson talking about the great years of World Championship Wrestling. Engage cybernetic generation sequence. And now, let's go to the ring, and here's your co-host, hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to What Happened When? Monday, right here on the MLW Radio Network, and of course, the master of ceremonies, the man you're here for, the voice of professional wrestling below the Mason-Dixon line, Tony Schiavone. How are you, Tony? Thanks, Conrad. Hi, everybody. Good to be talking to you, and hello, slapdicks all around the world, of course, led by the senior slapdick himself, Conrad Thompson. Good to be with you, and I'd like to open up the program here, uh, Conrad, by saying... Never say never. Oh, I love it. So in case you haven't been paying attention last week on the show, uh, Tony caught us up about his experience at MLW one shot, and that's posted and available for your enjoyment right now over at MLWTV.com. Ricochets in the main event, Sammy Callahan, MVP. There's lots of fun stuff going on, but the big thing I was excited about is Tony Schiavone was calling wrestling again. And of course, last week he announced proudly. He was done and it was never happening again. And I said, well, this will be a Terry Funk retirement. It lasted, (laughs) it lasted five days. Uh, so never really meant two months. You're coming back in December. Do I have that right? Tony December 7th. Uh, the next event by MLW is going to be called never say never. Uh, I will be there at the guilt nightclub in Orlando calling the play by play along with, uh, I'm assuming that I'm going to be working with the rich again. I'm not sure. Really enjoy working with Rich Bocchini. Great kid. Uh, a lot of fun, uh, a fine young man. So I enjoyed that. And I thought, eh, you know what? The wedding's not paid for yet. <laughs> Why not? Okay. So I'm going to do it. I'm going to be there. And by the way, tickets go on sale for the event this week. Uh, we are, uh, this show is, uh, downloading. On the 20th of, or the 16th of October on Monday, on the 20th this week, tickets will go on sale for our next event, Never Say Never. I love it. Um, Never Say Never is true with wrestling retirements. And uh, I guess with David Arquette being the world champion, of course, last week we covered Ready to Rumble. And uh, I got lots of great feedback. Lots of people were impressed with our, uh, our knowledge of manhole covers. And, uh, they had a good time hearing you talk about running the doo-doo truck. What was the feedback you got from our ready to rumble episode? Got a lot of feedback about the doo-doo truck because it's a shoot. I I did, uh, work a doo-doo truck and, and I did eat my lunch in the cab of the doo-doo truck. One time, uh, I don't even know if I mentioned this last week, but one time we were on lunch, guy named Mark and I, uh, work together. So, you know, envision all these years later, you're still working the marks. Can you believe it? (laughs) So me and this guy named Mark, we're in the doo-doo truck and we filled it up too full. Hmm. Okay. And so we're going down the street in, uh, in Augusta County, Virginia, and I hit the brakes 
and it goes all over the cab, right over the cab. And I said, you hungry? And he said, yeah. So we went and got something to eat. So uh, <laughs> it really was the drizzling shits right there. <laughs> it certainly was. And that's just a snippet of thank you very much for your response to uh, our ready to rumble. Uh, and a lot of guys were surprised that I remember the, uh, the movie so much, but, uh, I, I have watched the movie a number of times and enjoyed it. And, uh, you know, we just like to have fun, don't we? On this episode on our, on, on what happened when, don't we? I mean, I do. I, I think, uh, everybody listening does too. And I think most people want to know when you're talking about picking up lunch, how many times did you eat chili dogs? Oh, uh, a number of times, especially when we were up, uh, up North, uh, North in Augusta County, where they have some pretty good chili dogs up there. So, so you just, you shut all that out. You know, you don't worry about, you know, I got real good too at killing flies. Hmm. I, I, you're pretty <laughs> so good. You sound, at, pretty you sound good. impressed by that. Well, I mean, but, I, knew, I knew you had a knack for killing wrestling companies, but I didn't know flies too. No, if you want to kill a fly, you go straight on at it. Okay. You don't try to swipe him from behind because his eyes are on the side. You go right straight at him and you can kill a fly. And I got very good at that. It's amazing, so with it's hand. amazing that you know that. Um, it's yeah. also amazing that Court Bauer has not learned the lesson. You know, what's that old deal about uh, those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it? I mean, yeah. you're commentating for Jim Crockett Promotions, out of here. <laughs> commentating right. for WCW, out of here. Right. I mean, it's about to be third time's the charm here, right? Well, uh, for all the uh, all of our fans who who will uh, who will download and listen to our next event, uh, never say never. If you hear me say that'll put butts in the seats, know the end is near. <laughs> okay. <laughs> hey, so let's uh, do a little bit of follow up on Ready to Rumble. We had some pretty fun questions there when you guys were filming in Vegas. Why were no scenes filmed at the Nitro Grill? Wow. Great question. Never you know what? I, I never did go into the nitro grill. Never did see it. Wow. Isn't that something? It is. Yeah. I, I can't, I can't answer that. Do, uh, do you remember if any of the guys, any of the boys who worked on the movie thought that this was going to be like their big break into the movies? Not that uh, maybe page did because page had a big part in it. But as far as the guys underneath, you know, Hooventude and Conan and Sid Vicious doing a run in and, uh, a cameo by the disco Inferno. I don't think any of those guys, well, no, no, none of those guys really saw that as they're breaking to the movie business. Uh, I got a, a message from hurricane Helms who, uh, really? is, is a big listener to the show here. And, and he told me that, uh, there was kind of a fun story about filming, um, that scene early on. Uh, in the gas station or the convenience store, as it were. And there being some sort of a, a situation where the ring malfunctioned and he was injured and Macho Man was injured. Uh, and it was kind of a big to do. Do you remember hearing about that? I, I do. I do remember hearing about a couple of guys getting hurt because of a ring malfunction, but I didn't know it was Helms and didn't know it was Savage. Uh, he says in that opening scene in the gas station, the ring ropes broke and both me and Savage got fucked up. They were worried about Savage while I was rolling on the floor in pain and no one cared. LOL. Well, we always cared about you, Shane. No, he's just we, saying we, in that moment, the Hollywood people, he said, yeah. he writes, I could have been on fire and no one would have noticed. 
LOL. Well, I guess uh, I guess Shane now realizes what stuntmen go through, right? As long as the star is okay, fuck you. Uh, he also theorized that there was a lot of talk once upon a time about John Goodman perhaps having the role of Jimmy King. Of course, something happened and Oliver Platt wound up with the role. Do you remember hearing that John Goodman was being considered for that role? John Goodman was the guy I thought was going to get the role. How fun I think would that we, have I think been. we all thought that. That would have been so much different, I think. The whole movie yeah. would have felt different. It would have been different, but in hindsight, if you go back and watch it, we're talking about this movie like it's an Oscar winner, but if you go back and watch it, I think Oliver Platt did a great job. Great job. Uh, he also noted that uh, Oliver Platt was rumored to have complained about Martin Landau being too stiff with him in one of the scenes. Do you remember that? No. <laughs> I don't know why, but that just tickled me. <laughs> one more time, because I don't know when we'll cover it again. Uh, what was Sal's catchphrase? Sal Bandini. Want to wrestle? <laughs> I love it. It's so awesome. I don't know when we'll cover a movie again, but I know that Hollywood has been busted wide open over on the Squared Circle Cinema. It's a podcast that reviews films featuring professional wrestlers. Every other Monday, your hosts, Big Tobacco and The Muffler, are going to discuss triumphant performances by the biggest superstars in wrestling. Rowdy Roddy Piper, of course, he was in John Carpenter's classic, They Live. Uh, Kevin Nash was also in Magic Mike XXL and The Longest Yard. Big Tobacco and The Muffler are also going to take a suicide dive into the dark recesses of truly awful films like Santa with Muscles, starring Hulk Hogan, or The Condemned 2 with Randy Orton. In addition to film, your hosts chat about the small screen and their two-part episode covering Netflix's Glow. Each episode will also feature discussion on the latest wrestling news, riffs on pop culture, and relentless ball busting, just like you enjoy here. The next episode of Squared Circle Cinema covering Baywatch, featuring The Rock, uh, is going to drop today, October 16th. So go rate, review, and subscribe to Squared Circle Cinema on iTunes and visit them at squaredcirclecinema.com. What everybody's here for right now, though, Tony, is us to talk about Stone Cold Steve Austin. Before he was uh, Stone Cold, he was stunning in WCW. Are you ready? I'm ready. Let's talk about him because I, I feel great about being able to talk about one of the true uh, superstars, maybe one of the greatest superstars of all time in wrestling. Maybe, Conrad, one of the greatest superstars in the history of professional wrestling. Oh, I'm so glad you broke that out. I was hoping you'd say our great sport, but I'll, I'll keep hope alive. Yeah. So Austin comes into the company in May of 1991, and this is on the heels of him winning the PWI rookie of the year in 1990. Of course, breaking in, he broke in in Texas, uh, went down to Memphis for a little bit and then winds up back in Texas. Of course, there was that spot there where world-class combined with USWA, uh, the Memphis territory. So it was kind of both spots at once. Not the best deal in history, but most of these wrestling mergers don't really work out. Uh, but Austin comes in with uh, a little bit of fanfare. When did you first meet Steve Austin? Well, I met him in 1991 when he first came in. And of course, I had just been back for about a year. And, you know, Dusty was booking back then. And, and uh, we all felt that the guy really had something special. Uh, he had a, he had a knack about him. He had the, I'm not going to say he had the look, but he had the presence about him that he was going to be a star. I, I, his, his interview skills were not developed yet. Uh, but he could really work in the ring and do some great stuff in the ring. 
uh, and just kind of felt like he belonged. You know, some guys have that, Conrad. Just Dustin like, Rhodes was like that when he first started. Maybe Barry uh, Wyndham too. Oh yeah, Wyndham too. There's no question. Some guys just have. Some guys okay. just have the neck. Uh, Austin gets the call to come join WCW from Magnum TA. Um, what was Magnum's role with the company at this time? Magnum was the assistant booker to Dusty Rhodes at that time. Uh, he was, he would be, uh, a JJ Dillon type later down the line. Steve was uh, flown to Atlanta and he meets with Dusty here and they offer him a contract for $75,000 a year. And when he first debuts, uh, he's put with vivacious Veronica as his valet. Uh, she is Rex King's ex-girlfriend. Any memories of vivacious Veronica? Um, hmm. I think vivacious Veronica, did she have like a rose a single rose? Maybe so. I don't really recall. Okay. I, I think this was a girl from Baltimore that, uh, one of our, uh, guys in the office fell in love with. Well, I can tell you're being coded there for a reason. A few weeks later, Austin was paired <laughs> with his real life wife, Jeannie, uh, who came in as lady blossom. There was no explanation or anything given on TV. They just swapped these ladies out a lot like they do in like a 90s sitcom when the mom won't resign. They just sign a new mom. Um, she wrote in her book that Dusty named her because she was blossoming out of her top. Do you recall this being an issue with uh, Lady Blossom? I don't think it was an issue with Blossom. Jeannie was uh, was willing to do whatever it takes to to try to get over and try to develop her character. And that's a, that's a shoot. Uh, she was named lady blossom because she basically was kind of coming out of her top. Now you I think, know what I'm, Oh, absolutely. Her cup runneth over. Yeah. Very, or both of them do. Yes. Um, a lot of people have probably only been familiar with Steve Austin in the WWF. So they're used to black boots, black trunks and a bald head and a goatee. Uh, but here it's much, much different. Uh, Austin's in with long blonde hair that's often he wears in a ponytail. He's got multicolored bicycle shorts on and white boots, and he often wears a red and black robe to the ring. And his wrestling style is much different too. Rather than being a brawling baby face, uh, he's a bumping heel here. He's flying around and having long technical matches. Uh, you, you would see him often positioned in the card where he would have a 15 or 20 minute match. And a lot of that is, is very different from what we know quote unquote, got him over in the WWF. Um, but he looked like a million bucks as far as physique. He looks like the wrestler of the day in a big way. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, he does. You know, the hair that he had, though, if I recall when he first started, he had a kind of long blonde hair. It really didn't work for him. And it wasn't until later when he cut that hair and made it really short during the Hollywood blondes era that, that, that I really thought he had a pretty good look about it. Of course, when he first got started in wrestling, he wanted to be called Steve Williams, his real name, but Dutch Mantel reminded him, we already have a Steve Williams. So Steve Austin was born and Austin admittedly didn't really want to be Steve Austin because of the $6 million man connection. Uh, but eventually he turns heel and becomes stunning Steve Austin, which I think Dutch can also get credit for as well. So here he's stunning Steve Austin. And Steve says on his first night in the promotion, they tell him they're going to put the TV title on him. And at the time, the current champ was beautiful Bobby Eaton. Most of us remember him from the run with Midnight Express. 
uh, and to kind of backtrack, Bobby Eaton had beaten Arn Anderson for the television title. So this is at the time, very much the working belt. If you're going from Arn Anderson to Bobby Eaton, these are guys who can put on great matches, right? Tony put on great, great matches. And not only that, they would, they could give you 30 minutes, which was normally what the television t- Well, I think maybe the television title was 15 minute time limit. Sometimes, sometimes we would have a 30 minute time limit, but these were guys who could go longer. And Steve fit into that. just like you were talking about, he could bump. Uh, so he was perfect to fit in, to become a contender or the television champion. So his first match is May 13th, 1991. He defeats Chuck Coates. And just a couple of weeks after that on June 3rd, he beats Bobby Eaton to win the television title. So he's getting pushed in a big way here. Uh, who would have been really high on Austin at the time, dusty and someone else maybe, or was this, was he a dusty guy right away? Well, he was a dusty guy right away. Dusty loved him. Now, of course, you know, Steve is from Austin, Texas, and Dusty's from Texas. I don't know if that had anything to do with it, but Dusty loved him. Magnum loved him. Uh, I think we all thought he had something special. But, yeah, uh, I don't know if, if if it's fair, Conrad, to call him one of Dusty's guys. He just, Dusty just knew the, uh, he had some uh, he had some great skills. He was kind of a throwback. And uh, I don't know if saying that he was one of Dusty's guys is uh, really accurate. But Dusty liked him. So he comes in, and he's getting a big push right away. And a lot of times, you know, we hear rumor and innuendo that some of the boys who are in the locker room may not be so friendly to an outsider coming into the locker room and coming in with a big push. How did Austin assimilate to the locker room to the best of your knowledge? Do you recall him having any sort of issues or... Was he one of the boys right away? Well, Steve is a a very likable guy, at least was a very likable guy back then. I thought he assimilated quite well. Now, also keep in in mind that I just, I didn't always hang around in the locker room, Uh, but Steve seemed to fit in quite well. I don't think there was any problems. Now, there may be something out there that said that he didn't. Maybe there were some writers that said, well, Austin's having a problem in the locker room, you know, one thing about WCW was, and even uh, Jim Crockett promotions before that, and really even, even in the WWF, you know, locker room politics are, are pretty much the norm. Uh, so it, it seemed to me that Austin fit in quite well, but there may be some issues that I'm unaware of. Well, the day after winning the TV title, here's a fun fact for you. He defended right. his television title against flying Brian Pillman in Birmingham. Kind of ironic considering what we're going to talk about eventually here. As the TV champ, he's working against Tommy Rich, Tommy Angel, and even Keith Hart, the brother of Owen and Bret Hart, uh, who, of course, he's going to run into down the line eventually. He's also got matches against Sam Houston and, of course, many rematches against Bobby Eaton. And a lot of those Bobby Eaton matches even go to time limit draws. So it's very much the worker's belt. Uh, let's talk about the disaster that was Great American Bash 1991. It goes down on July yeah. 14th. We've covered this in long form in the archives, but I feel like we should mention it won worst match of the year in 1991 because Austin is teaming with Terry Taylor, and they're taking on PN News and Big Josh in a scaffold match. Uh, how would you describe this in a few words, Tony? Major clusterfuck. I think, that's I think it was also kind of. considered... Conrad, not only the worst match of the year, 
but maybe the worst booked match of the year. Did I read that somewhere that, uh, maybe, uh, you know, Mr. Uh, Mr. Know-it-all uh, Dave Meltzer considered that the worst book match of the year. There was no reason to put a guy the size of PN news on a scaffold. No. Uh, well, l- let me back up. There was no reason to put anybody on a scaffold. Thank you. I mean, for crying out loud, Bobby Eaton can do a lot of stuff, but Bobby Eaton can do anything on a freaking scaffold when all the guys as brave and as tough as you freaking are, but you go 20 feet in the air on a scaffold as well as that scaffold is, is maybe secured. It's like walking on a tightrope. It really, really is. And so it just, it was horrible. And what I remember most about that, I know that Steve was not happy about going up there. Uh, and I, and I know Terry Taylor wasn't and Bobby, you never know. Bobby was kind of the guy that would do anything. You know, he, if he complained, you never did hear that much about it. At least I didn't. PN news was petrified, absolutely petrified. And if you go back and watch that match, first of all, if you go back and watch that match, shame on you. No one should ever relive that moment, but PN news just kind of dropped down and hugged on for dear life. The entire the entire match. Well, so. it's weird too, because you've got three really good in-ring performers and Austin Taylor and Eaton, and they can show you a lot of stuff here. I just realized a minute ago, for some reason I said, big Josh, but he would wind up working with big Josh and defending the title against big Josh. who would go on to be doing the clown uh, matches against Johnny B bad, the yellow dog, Mike Graham, tons of TV title defenses through July of 91. Uh, and even into August. Uh, on the Great American Bash Tour, August 12th, uh, we would see Austin team with the Diamond Stud, who we would go on to know as Scott Hall, and they're tagging with the Hardliners, um, Dick Murdoch and Dick Slater. And they're taking on Big Josh, Bobby Eaton, Dustin Rhodes, and Z-Man. I feel like this era of WCW kind of gets disregarded a lot, but look at the talent in that ring. Scott Hall, Steve Austin, Dick Murdoch, Dick Slater, um, Matt Bourne, Bobby Eaton, Dustin Rhodes, and your favorite, the Z-Man. Yeah. it's a lot of talent right there. Yeah, a lot of talent. Uh, and I guess you can go back and now ask the question, why were we losing steam as a company when we had all that talent? Can I freestyle a guess here? Yes, you can. It's because the guy that got pushed the most out of that whole group was the fucking Z-Man. <laughs> well, as we know, Z-Man is a, a very... Nice looking young man. Well, and, and you, what, you would know that if you went over to lowestrules.com and picked up, I'm a Tom Zink guy. We actually have that as a shirt and notice the new domain name, the new website here, Tony, lowestrules.com. And we've got three new t-shirts. Tell everybody all about them. Well, listen, I, I do need to say this, uh, before I talk about our t-shirts, I hit Lois the other day with our new domain name, right? Uh, she was not happy with it. Really? Yeah. She was happy in that her ego was stroked. Uh, but now, you know, she's got the bug. And you know what that means, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. She wants, uh, she wants part of the proceeds. Oh, well, fuck that. Go to, <laughs> go to TomZinc.com. <laughs> okay. Uh, if you go there to TomZinc.com, you can prove that you too are a TomZinc guy and You'll see that Tony's new favorite shirt, Married for Life, is That's up right. there. Uh, and I don't and know Rick who Flair's we favorite shirt, at, at least at one time, when I witnessed it, was Cat Bath. It's still his favorite shirt. And okay. uh, maybe your favorite new shirt, finger licking, 
finger licking. It's all available <laughs> at TomZinc.com. And when you pick up a shirt, I feel like suckers got to know that they'll eventually get a call from you. Isn't that right? They will get a call from me. Uh, I had some tweets this week that said, when are you going to call me? When are you going to call me? And I'm thinking, settle down. I'm going to get to you, man. I really am. So I'm a little bit behind. Uh, still, number one with a bullet is... Tommy Young. No question. Uh, and I've got some friends. I'm going to pull out the what a slap dick shirt for them because that's who you are, my friends. That's who you are. I'm a big fan of um, the Syracuse slap dicks this week because they took down Clemson. Yes, you are. Uh, so that was kind of fun, especially if you're Peggy Lathan. I feel like maybe we should send her a Syracuse <laughs> slap dick shirt just to be a nice guy. Again, that's TomZinc.com. Pick up a shirt. It's the easiest, fastest, cheapest way to support the show. Well, we better say LoisRules.com because it'll get back to her that we're not saying anymore. So let's use it. Okay? okay. I'll take care of, I'll give her a dollar a day or something to leave me alone. All right. All right. We'll do it. LoisRules.com. TomZinc.com. Later in August, uh, Steve Austin is going to be working with uh, Bobby Eaton again. Again, the TV title is On the Line, Um, but they're doing a 10-minute time limit gimmick, which Dusty was a big fan of. So Bobby Eaton's winning the match, but just as time has expired, so the belt does not change hands. He's saved by the bell. And Austin's working the Omni, which is a WCW birthright, I suppose, on August 25th. And he's involved in a tournament here to crown a new United States champion. And he would defeat Barry Windham by DQ in the quarterfinals. But eventually he beats Z-Man. And in the finals, he loses to Sting. So Sting is the new U.S. champion. So very early in his run here in WCW, he wins the television title. And he's working the finals against Sting, the top star in the company for the U.S. title. And they're showing highlights of this. Um, for his TV for a few weeks here. He's accomplished a lot in a short time. I mean, that, you're talking about debuting in May, and here we are in August. This is about as hard of a push as you can come into the company with, right? There's no question. But uh, listen, Conrad, he deserved it. He was good. He was a, he was a great worker, and uh, he, was a, he was a very good talker. We, we obviously didn't realize how good of a talker he would become. And he just had the look. I mean, he was just... Look, back then, you know, we, we believe back then that in WCW, you know, we are wrestling, right? Right. Uh, and so we believe that a guy that could come in and work like that uh, and talk like he could talk was going to be a star, and we give him the big push. Clash of the Champions 16 is Fall Brawl. It's September 5th, 1991, and Austin would successfully defend the TV title against Z-Man. Did you have mixed emotions in that match? No, uh, I, I was I was a pro back then. I didn't let my emotions carry me away. Later in the show, Austin is competing in a battle royal, and he's thrown out by Ellie Gante. That's got to be a fucking rib. Uh, <laughs> it comes out that Austin and Dustin Rhodes were actually born in the same hospital in Austin, Texas. And here's what a small world it is. According to the rumor and innuendo, Steve Austin's mom went to high school with Dusty Rhodes. Did you ever hear that, Tony? Never heard that story at all. No, my goodness. It's, it's just amazing how small the world is. Come September, Austin is working with Dustin Rhodes. Huh. Uh, and, and here's an interesting match I ran across in my research. This one's from October 10th, 1991. We've got the fabulous Freebirds, Michael Hayes and Jimmy Garvin, taking on Steve Austin and Tony Mella. Fast forward five years, of course, and that's when Hayes is holding the mic 
and Steve Austin cuts the Austin 316 promo. It's weird to see, kind of looking back how all this intertwines. Uh, on October 10th and 11th, Dustin is tagging with Big Josh, taking on Steve Austin and Oz. We haven't talked about mm. Oz a ton here on the show, but I mean, really process this again. You've got what would be Goldust and Doink taking on Stone Cold Steve Austin and Diesel. And WCW just didn't know what the fuck to do with it. This is 91. That's pretty crazy, is it not? Yeah, well, you know, look, uh, history is unkind to WCW in many ways, deservedly so. But, you know, you try to give these guys characters and personas and gimmicks that fit who they are. Sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. Look, and we'll get into this more, I know, when we're talking about Stone Cold. But obviously, compared to Stone Cold, Stunning Steve was a fucking popcorn fart. And obviously, compared to Oz, or compared to Kevin Nash, Oz is even less than a popcorn fart. I understand that. But at the time, <laughs> you, tr- you try to do what, what you think is best. And I guess kind of what we're doing is, in a way, maybe we're wrong. Tell me I'm wrong here, Conrad, because I loved him. We're kind of knocking on Dusty Rhodes' creativity compared to the creativity down the road of Vince McMahon, are we? Well, in fairness, Vince had just as many stinkers. You know, it's uh, it's a matter of right time, right place, you know, timing for a lot of it, I'm sure. Right. Uh, guys who would be a superstar under Dusty would go to Vince and be nothing and vice versa. So timing, I'm sure, is a lot of it. Let's run through what's going down on November 5th, though. We would see Austin team up with Arn Anderson for the very first time, and they would defeat Bobby Eaton and Dustin Rhodes. Uh, and then he continues his TV title run through November, working against Brian Pillman and Dustin Rhodes for the most part. And I found this kind of interesting. That Christmas, December 25th through the 28th, he's working against Scott Steiner uh, for the television title. Knowing the, the singles push that Steiner would have as Big Papa Pump, it feels like if you could press fast forward a few years, this would have been a main event anywhere in the country, big box office stuff. You're talking about like the stone cold against big Papa pump. Wouldn't that have been fucking unbelievable? Oh yeah, sure. We have a, we have the luxury of being able to do that. Now Scott was put into a situation back then though, where they thought that Scott should be given a push, uh, away from Rick Steiner one time. And they were just trying to, as the old cliche goes, Throw shit against the wall, see what sticks, right? But yeah, God, big pop a pump against Stone Cold Steve Austin. Holy. I, I want to bring this up because there's been a little bit of controversy this year about the WWE running a show on Christmas Day um, or running it during the holidays. I think they have a show for all the major holidays this time, unless that's changed already. But there's a little bit of controversy. But you guys were running it even back here in 91, a down year in the business on Christmas. Uh, do you, are you for or against that? Is that part of the business? What do you think's changed about that mentality? Well, what's changed about that mentality is that there is so much else for you to do, uh, entertainment wise during the holidays, uh, than there was back then old school back then. And I'm talking, when I talk old school, obviously I talk Jim Crockett promotions. The big days were Thanksgiving, Christmas, and new year's. Those were the big days in the business. And that's because fans had cabin fever. They wanted to get out and go do something. 
Well, wrestling had that niche. And those were big days. And the boys liked it because uh, they were big payoff days because they all, always drew big crowds. Now, fast forward to what we got now. You don't even have to go out of your house to see a, a, a basically almost a first-run movie anymore. Uh, and there's so much else. you got a million channels, of which 999,000 suck. Uh, but there's a, it just, society has changed. So they're getting heat about running these towns during the holidays when it's probably not that important anymore. It's more, a, a professional wrestling is more of a television show now than an arena driven event. You know that. Let's talk about Starcade from 1991. This is the lethal lottery tournament. I'm sure we're going to cover this at some point in long form. Uh, but Lethal Lottery was a drawing to create random tag teams who would face each other, and whoever advances winds up in a battle royal later that night. Well, Austin winds up teaming with Rick Rude to take on Big Josh and Van Hammer. Of course, Rude and Austin win. They're both in the battle royal. Sting winds up winning it there. And he finishes 1991 uh, working against Scott Stoner to a draw on the 30th. Overall, you got to think Austin's 1991 in WCW was one hell of a start. It was. It was one of the great starts that, that we had. Well-deserved. We're starting 92 off with a bang, too. Austin's put with the brand-new group, the Dangerous Alliance, mm -hmm. uh, probably one of the most underrated and le least talked-about groups in wrestling history. Check this line out up. You've got Ravishing Rick Rude, the Enforcer Arn Anderson, Bobby Eaton, Larry Zabisco, and Steve Austin. And, of course, they're managed by Paulie dangerously. And of course, great friend of the show. Medusa is in the group as well. Why don't you think the dangerous Alliance gets the credit they deserve? Is it because it just happened in a downtime in the wrestling yeah. industry? It happened in a downtime for WCW. There's no question. And if you think about, they are also in the shadow of the four horsemen. Arn Anderson, uh, four horsemen now moving over with the dangerous Alliance. So, both those things combined. It feels like, um, now that I'm thinking about the women here, he mm. may, Stone Cold may have been living your dream life here. He was married to Lady Blossom. He's being managed by Medusa. He's going to go on to marry Deborah McMichael. I mean, is this like a dream scenario for Tony Schiavone? You damn right it is, man. Uh, that, uh, I would have loved to have <laughs> yeah, <roll time. laughs> done, all, done all three, so, so to speak. Uh, worked a program with all three. Am, right, am I saying the, that right? Okay, get yeah. the hot tag. I got it. The hot tag. Well, no. Wait a sec. Yes. Yes. We're, we're working ourselves into a corner here. On January <laughs> 5th, Austin wrestles his first match as a member of the Dangerous Alliance, and he's teaming with Bobby Eaton to take on Big Josh and Van Hammer. You know, we haven't talked about it much. Tony, what's your favorite Van Hammer match? Uh, the ones that I didn't call. There you go. Uh, he's ah, he's, he's, Jesus. He's uh, teaming with Bobby Eaton on Saturday night uh, to take on Sting and Marcus Alexander Bagwell uh, back when he was kind of angling to be the rookie of the year. And Clash of the Champions would come down on January 21st. We'd see Austin and Rude lose to Sting and Ricky Steamboat. Uh, and then on the Power Hour, uh, we would see a six-band tag. Austin is aligning himself with Arn Anderson and Bobby Eaton and taking on the babyface team of Dustin Rhodes, Ron Simmons, and Ricky Steamboat. Uh, and they kind of continue that uh, through the loop for a little bit. 
occasionally you would see a different lineup of Austin, Rude, and Eaton taking on Sting, Steamboat, and Bagwell. So they're certainly trying to push Bagwell here, and Steamboat's kind of the worker uh, of the group. Um, I guess the big deal that we need to talk about is your favorite dream match, maybe. March 25th, WCW Saturday Night presented Stunning Steve Austin and the Z-Man in a two-out-of-three falls match for the television title. I'm curious, with all the talent on this roster, how the fuck does Z-Man keep working himself into a featured spot here? You tried to uh, insinuate something my way that I had some influence in that? Or Barnett did, or somebody. Well. It doesn't make any sense to me that you've got all this talent, all these guys I'm naming here, and the fucking Z-Man is getting all this TV time. Okay, yeah, well... Look, we have a lot of fun at my expense and at Tom's expense, but Z-Man was a decent worker, don't you think? I mean, you wouldn't call Tom Zink a shitty worker, would you? What's your favorite Z-Man promo? I I can't re- recall one. What about your favorite I, Z-Man match? Probably this one. <laughs> <laughs> so this is around the time that Bill Wyatt started to change Saturday night, which at the time, this is pre-Nitro, of course. This is the flagship show of the company. Yeah, the mothership. He, he wants the main events to be two out of three falls. Uh, it doesn't last very long, but he does try to really push that the main event needs to be lots of wrestling. Were you for that? Or at the time, did you feel like that was going a little too old school with the way the WWF had been presenting their product? No, I was for it because I thought we should be different, completely different than the WWF. Whether it worked or not, that was not for me to say, but I thought we should be marketably different than the WWF. April 25th and 27th, Austin is doing this two out of three falls match again for the television title, this time against Barry Wyndham. And Wyndham actually gets the win on April 27th. Uh, And it starts to feel a little bit like uh, what's going on. Now, we've had quite a run here for a year. But on May 2nd, the returning Nikita Koloff beats Steve Austin, and that seems like a rib. A week yeah, later, how it does. How's, yeah. how's this for a fun story? You've got uh, stunning Steve Austin tagging with Cactus Jack, which is hilarious because they'd win the tag titles later and do huge business for the WWF. And they're going to take on the Junkyard Dog and Ron Simmons. Huh. Um, how, how do you think Ron enjoyed working with JYD? <laughs> uh, you know, there was a, look, as we all know, <laughs> boy, you are putting me in, you're, you're putting me into the quote machines. That's going to be at all the dirt sheets, you know, Shivani shit on Dusty Rhodes is booking. Shivani loves the Z-Man. Shiv- uh, fuck. Anyway, let me say this. JYD was not the greatest worker in the world. We all know that, correct? Correct. All right. But there was a certain respect that everybody had, I think for JYD of the, of, of the star that he had been. So I have a feeling Ron, there may be a a quote there that Ron has about uh, working with JYD where he didn't like it, that I've not read, but I have a feeling that Ron just tried to make the best of that situation. Oh, I was just being a smart ass. Hey, do you know what? Really? Do you know what Dave Meltzer's (laughs) nickname for JYD was? Yeah. Junk food dog. How great is that? Yeah. It's, it sucks. Yeah, Dave, uh, look, JYD uh, made much more money in the business than Dave Meltzer did. Drew more money than Dave. By the way, did, so. uh, JYD laughed at the joke. 
He was. Did he? He he knew about the name and thought it was funny. Yeah. So. Yeah, we always took the high road. It's good name. Good. He's a good kid. Uh, good Wrestle, Wrestle War. This is kind of a. I guess I should mention this. May tenth in the Omni. Listen to this shit. This is unbelievable when you think about it. The Great Muda is tagging with Barry Windham and Dustin Rhodes to take on Steve Austin, Bobby Eaton, and Arn Anderson. This wow. is unbelievable, the amount of talent here. Uh, and, and this is more, you know, underrated good stuff here. If you haven't seen it, go out of your way. Wrestle War, 92. There's a War Games, and they're taking on Sting, Nikita, Steamboat, Wyndham, and Rhodes. That's Sting's squadron. Run through that list again. Sting, Nikita, Steamboat, Wyndham, and Rhodes taking on the Dangerous Alliance of Austin, Arn, Eaton, Zabisco, and Rude. What do you remember about Wrestle War 92? Probably one of the more underrated war games. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, it was. Let me ask you this. I cannot remember the actual finishes of that, but I remember thinking exactly what we're talking about right now, that, man, this is pretty damn loaded. Here's my question. You can have a loaded card with a great talent, but were the matches any good? And that's always the underlying fact there. Sure. If you you come away with a star-studded lineup, it all sounds great on paper, but then when the night's over, did you give them a good match? Did you give them something entertaining? No doubt so, about it. That was entertaining. If you haven't seen that War Games, and I know it's not one that everybody talks about because there's no Horsemen and there's no NWO and there's no Dusty Roads, and go watch it. War Games 1992. It's outstanding. Super underrated. Uh, May 23rd, just about a week later, we would see Austin win the television title for the second time, defeating Barry Windham. And then he uh, finds himself in the tag title tournament at Clash of the Champions in June. He's teaming with Rick Rude, and they beat Z-Man and Bagwell. And then uh, on Beach Blast, uh, we see Ole Anderson as the ref, and we would see Koloff, Wyndham, and Rhodes beat uh, Austin, Eaton, and Arn. Beach Blast 92 is uh, a fairly fun pay-per-view, but Ole has the ref. Sounds like that's in the all right. Sounds like that's in the book of bad ideas. Uh, let's move along here. Uh, Austin is going to, again, face Brian Pillman to retain the TV title on June 26th. Let's get to Great American Bash July 12th. It's the NWA Tag Title quarterfinals. Wyndham and Rhodes would defeat Austin and Rude here. And around this time, the Dangerous Alliance parts ways with Larry Zabisco. And on July 14th, Austin successfully defends the TV title against Larry Zabisco. How do you think Larry enjoyed working at this point in his career. We're not too far away from him becoming more of a commentator role with WCW. He's certainly winding down his wrestling career in these years. Is he preferring tag matches? Is he, is he kind of lobbying for a position with a title run? Is he just cool? I need my check every Friday. What's the Bisco's approach towards the business at this point? Well, his approach towards the business is, and knowing Larry very well, his body was starting to give out on him. He had, some knee problems. Uh, he had to take some time off. Uh, he and I traveled together, uh, and, but he was always in favor of being involved in the business in some fashion, whether he lobbied for it or not. I I really don't think so. I, I think we all knew that Larry could talk and could work, but I think we all knew that his working days were kind of winding down. So we wanted to use him in other ways. And obviously he made quite a name for himself in the future, uh, being one of our commentators, but, uh, you know, Larry wanted to stay active in the business because anybody that knows Larry Zabisco, like I know Larry Zabisco, 
he probably still has the first dollar he's ever made. Really? Oh my God. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, he, uh, and you know, I talked to Larry, uh, recently when we had, uh, MLW's, uh, last event and I was in Orlando and, and Larry came in and talked to me and, and, you know, he's the same. He's still gay. He's still involved in wrestling. He still has his hand in, in everything that goes on, uh, and still loves the business and still has a great mind for the business. I mean, my goodness, he was married into Vern Gagne's family. And, um, so yeah, Larry would, would just wanted to stay relevant and he could be as a tag team, uh, cigar store Indian, he could stay relevant, uh, moving on down the line. Let's talk a little bit about, uh, clash of the champions 20. This is where we would see Ricky steamboat finally defeat Steve Austin for the TV title. Uh, and I guess that's notable because clash of the champions 20 I believe it was the last television appearance of Andre the Giant. Right. What do you remember about that night? Well, I remember about that night, and I think we talked about this before. I worked uh, as like a host of that with uh, with Missy Hyatt outside as the as the stars were coming in, and Andre the Giant, and I believe maybe didn't Bruno San Martino show up that night, and we were celebrating uh, uh, a our 20th clash of the champions at center stage. I remember really not watching much of the matches because I was doing a lot of work <clears throat> backstage with Missy. Uh, but I do remember, uh, that match because we're talking about two of the great performers that we had on our roster at that time. Yeah. I don't know that we have, um, talked about it a lot here, but Ricky steamboat was kind of, you know, obviously people talk about his series of matches with Macho Man and Ric Flair as being one of the greatest of all time, no matter who, which you prefer the stuff with Flair, the stuff with Savage, but as far as being a superstar, maybe he didn't have the name value of those other two guys, but he's certainly the measuring stick of, of how great of a wrestler you are. Wouldn't you agree with that, Tony? He was first noticed by Ric Flair. Ric Flair put him over on Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling back in the 70s. I saw it uh, at my Uncle John's house, and Flair knew what he had in Ricky Steamboat back then. And I'm going to say this. I'm, I'm, I'm talking as a fan and as someone who worked with him. I never saw Steamboat have a bad match. No. Ever. And some guy, you can say that about most, about most everybody. Ric Flair's had bad matches. Sure. Ricky Steamboat never did. Uh, is he in the Hall of Fame? Yes. Well, good. Ooh. I was going to go on a tangent there. <laughs> um, I was going to go on, on one of my, what the fuck is going on tangents? He went in in like 2009 off the okay, top of good. my head. This is the last time Austin holds the television title, and he held two versions of it, uh, the old classic, Jim Crockett promotions version, except on a black strap. And then later, um, the, the television title would be totally redesigned. And I think most people probably associate that version with Lord Steven Regal. He says that the, he being Austin says that this television title was one of the favorite titles he ever won. And the title certainly meant something. And he believed at this time he was being groomed for a push towards the top of the card that he's going to be dropping the television title because he's moving on up and he actually challenges for the world title on September 19th, taking on Ron Simmons. 
And later in the month, there is a change. And on September 29th, we see Austin and Pillman team up for the very first time. They beat Chris Sullivan and Tommy Angel. And later that night, Scott Steiner uh, would uh, team with Marcus Bagwell also to lose to Austin and Pillman. So it's interesting that we got kind of the early version of Steiner Bagwell years before the NWO, but also interesting that Austin goes from figured in to the world title picture to teaming with Brian Pillman. And, and he's talked about that. This was kind of a surprise to him because he had been, you know, discussing the singles run at the top for a while. And then all of a sudden at a TV taping, Brian Pillman approaches him and says, Hey, we need to figure out a finish. Did you ever have a conversation with Austin about him feeling like he had the rug jerked out from under him on a singles push here? I, I no, I, I did not, but I, I knew he was very unhappy. You know, Steve was a, Steve was the type of guy that kind of wore his emotions on his sleeve. You kind of always knew where he kind of stood. Uh, he wasn't uh, a guy that could hide his emotions quite well, but it was very apparent that he was not happy that he was getting the push. Now, Ron Simmons had the title push and, I think that's well-documented, and that's what Cowboy Bill Watson wanted because Cowboy Bill Watson thought that having an African-American as the heavyweight champion was the way to go. Um, you can discuss that all you want or comment on that all you want out there, slapdicks, but that's the way it was at that time. Uh, and as, as, as a creative, I mean, we're seeing this now with the WWE. As creative committee goes and as bookers go, you have to look at your title picture and have to look at your singles picture. And then you got to stop and think, what have we done to make tag team more exciting? Right. And that's why they were put together because they're both tremendous workers and they both had a lot of charisma and let's make, let's make the tag teams mean something more. And not saying that Austin didn't do it, but if you, if you're told, okay, we're going to make you a tag team wrestler. We know you want to be the world champion. We don't want to push you towards that, but be a tag team wrestler right now and, and work hard at it. And who knows, it may change down the road because one thing we know about booking and about ideas and about storylines, they change all the time. So you just kind of got to go with it. They uh, certainly changed a few days after this because Austin is working again as a single uh, on house shows, but he's losing to Shane Douglas in Lynchburg, Virginia. Um, and then he's doing a double shot that same day, this time defeating Z-Man in Harrisburg, mm-hmm. Virginia. The next night, he's working against Ron Simmons in a world title match. Of course, he's unsuccessful. And it was around this time that the Dangerous Alliance would disband because Paul Heyman was fired from WCW. What are your memories of this going down, Tony? This had, uh, did this happen? Jog my memory here. Did this happen when Ric Flair was in charge? Uh, I believe so. Yeah. Rick, something happened between danger, between Paulie and Ric Flair. Uh, and you know, Ric Flair's attention span would go in and out when he as as in charge of the booking committee would pay attention to a, a pre-tape being done. And then he wouldn't pay attention to a pre-tape being done. And he just so happened to hear something that Paulie said that was, completely uh, opposite of what he wanted Paul e to do. And that was the end of his run there. So, do, you, do you know what it was? I do not know. Uh-uh. Okay. Do you know what it was? Nope. Uh, Halloween Havoc 19. By the way, uh, Heyman sued the company 
and won a boatload of cash. We'll talk about that another time. You know why you want a boatload of cash? Because Turner settled everything. You're damn right. That's yeah. why. You could have sued the company back then, and they would have probably given you some money just yeah. for the hell of it. We have a listener and uh, a listener with a name, quote unquote, really? uh, who sued WCW and got paid off quick, fast, and in a hurry. Well, so did I. I. I mentioned that back when I worked for the WWE that one year. Sued them. The money came to me like a week later. Well, but you <laughs> sued for, for money owed. These guys were okay. suing just to cash in. Yeah. Uh, Halloween Havoc 92 is interesting here because maybe for the first time ever, I mean, it, it might not be. I just Maybe I made that up. But two guys <laughs> with the exact same name teamed up. So you've got Dr. Death, Steve Williams, and Steve Austin, whose real name is also Steve Williams. Uh, and they're taking on Barry Windham and Dustin Rhodes for the world tag team title. And it goes to a draw. Uh, and for some reason, Austin was not even scheduled for this event. He wrote in his book that at the time he was living in Douglasville, Georgia, and he was just about to open his garage door. So he could go dirt biking when he got a phone call from Bill Watts saying they were in Philadelphia and Terry Gordy didn't show up. So they needed Austin to come in and team with Steve Williams, uh, for the tag titles. So Austin says, okay. And, uh, went to the airport. Any memories of that going down? Uh, I do not because that was basically, uh, no, I don't remember that at all, but I do remember that was probably the end of Terry Gordy with us. Well, uh, I don't know how to transition from that to this, but check this out. It's a Christmas miracle on December 25th. (laughs) Steve Austin would lose to Eric Mm -hmm. fucking Watts. It's gotta be a rib. A couple of days later, on December 27th, he would lose to Masahiro Chono. And then on December 30th, he would lose to Sting. Uh, As we get into January, he gets a win over Shane Douglas on January 2nd. But on January 3rd, Scorpio beats him. Okay, can I I drop in something here? Please do. All those. December 25th, 26th, 27th, December 30th, January 2nd, January 3rd. All those are house shows? Yes. Ah, Okay, it means nothing. Move on. Well, I'm just it does. It, they, 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 it means nothing. I'm just running through names. Okay, you got to have finishes. Okay, you yeah, can me, go over one say, time. You'll you know this. you'll help put the guy over. Do this, do that. I'm not saying that I was in favor of Eric Watts beating Steve Austin, but I'm saying is okay, take that with a grain of salt. For the record, technically, Tony Schiavone and the Mortgage Guy breaking down what Steve Austin did in 1993 also means nothing. <laughs> so same same <laughs> i agree um january 5th the hollywood blondes are officially formed and they beat your favorite tag team johnny gunn and c-man yes uh, i don't know what it is about steve austin but uh, he is working with z-man a lot here as for the formation of the blondes austin has told the story and written in his book that he believed harley race was going to be his manager and he was on track to become the u.s champion and then work his way up towards hopefully eventually being in the world title picture. That's the natural progression of things. If you go TV title, U S title, world title. Uh, but this heads up from Brian Pillman, the, Hey, we're officially a tag team happens in Columbus, Georgia for a television taping. And when Austin goes and confronts dusty about it, uh, well, here's what Steve wrote in his book. He says, dusty said, yeah, baby, we just changed our mind. We're going to make you and Brian a tag team. Just trust me, baby. This team has legs. Yeah. And so they started the team and they're wearing different colored trunks. And one day Brian says, 
we've got to be a team. We've got to have a name. We need a cool name and matching outfits and stuff like that. They're traveling with a wrestler who we would now know as Raven. And I, think, I believe he was Scotty, the body back then. And they're sure all bouncing ideas off of each other. And they come up with the name of the Hollywood blondes. And technically Raven deserves the credit for that. According to Steve Austin, there was already a tag team, of course, in the seventies going by the name Hollywood blondes. It was Jerry Brown and buddy Roberts. Um, buddy Roberts, of course, would later go on to be one of the fabulous Freebirds. But Austin says he had just ordered $150 worth of new ring attire and Brian wanted to order all new stuff for their team. So they wound up getting the black and red stuff that you're probably familiar with. Um, there's a star on the back and it says Hollywood blinds and three stars on the front. Brian had jackets made, uh, which was like a silver leather jacket and then a black and red jacket. And Brian also bought Steve a gold chain. And you probably remember seeing Austin wear this because he wore it maybe for the rest of his wrestling career. Uh, and he, he still believes it's one of the most sentimental things he owns because Brian bought it for him. Uh, and he feels like even though his friend is gone, this is his connection to Brian. So he still right. wears it a lot. Uh, even these days. Um, he also says that one of the things they liked was to kind of create this hand gesture. Like they were filming a camera with their hands and they start using the slogan brush with greatness. And Brian Pillman, uh, would start to finish his promos with, instead of lights, camera action, it was lights, camera traction. Uh, I thought this for it just being the guys putting it together and it not coming down from creative. I thought they did a pretty good job with this. What'd you think? I, I thought it was great. I thought the whole, the whole gimmick was great. It goes back to this Conrad, not all great ideas come from the booker right. and not all great ideas how to uh, polish up your gimmick. Not all of them come from the booking committee. You've got to put it upon yourself to try to make it better. The ones who worked hard on their gimmick to try to make it better, to add this, add that little hand gestures, little uh, verbiage that you can hang on to. Those are the guys who all you always remember. And those are the guys who always came out ahead in the business. You know, I, I know I, I talk about this many times. It's a macho man, Randy Savage. He became the macho man, Randy Savage. He went to the WWE and look at his transformation through the years. The macho man, Randy Savage, how he looked different, how his gimmick changed. Of course, he was King macho man at one time. I know, but a lot of that was kind of came out of Randy's head out of his idea. Brian Pillman did a lot of work for this comp for this team. Uh, and so did Steve, but Brian, as we just have, have as said, did a lot of work for this team. And therefore that's why we remember this as a great tag team. They are, uh, they could work and we remember them because of that, but they also worried about their gimmick and that goes a long way in the business as well. What did you think about the pairing? You know, that Brian had previously had some match of the year candidate matches, but a more high flying style against Jushin Thunder Liger and such. Of course, Steve Austin was a more technical wrestler. He wasn't doing as, as much stuff off the top rope or any sort of acrobatics. Did you like the pairing? Did you get it? Yeah, I got it. I like the pairing because regardless of the styles, they were both great workers and just go back just a few minutes ago. They both put a lot of effort into their gimmick. There was, was a lot of good coming from the Hollywood blondes. They're going to start working with Ricky Steamboat and Shane Douglas, who are the tag champs here 
uh, through January, including Clash of the Champions 22. Steamboat and Douglas would retain by DQ there, uh, and they continue that pattern. As we get into February, we see something that kind of feels a little out of place in hindsight. Uh, Steamboat Douglas and the Rock and Roll Express are taking on the Hollywood Blondes and the Heavenly Bodies, which at the time is Stan Lane and Tom Pritchard. Uh, of course, Rock and Rolls and the Heavenly Bodies are in from Smoky Mountain Wrestling. How does that affiliation come to be? I, I'm not a, not that I'm not, I just, I don't know. Okay. Uh, I, I don't know. I, we got it. Super Bowl three. Well, look, look, it's one of those things where you just, you try to bring in new talent. I don't think Jim Cornette got a slice of this pie or anything like that. Or was Cornette even running Smoky Mountain back then? Uh, Cornette owned Smoky Mountain. So yeah, he was running it. Okay. Uh, Super Brawl 3, February 21st, the Blondes would defeat uh, Eric Watts and Marcus Alexander Bagwell. Um, and then Austin says there's no real plans for them to really get over. They were just kind of thrown together. At least that's his impression of the way this came to be. And now here they are in line to win the World Tag Team Championships. They actually pull it off on March 2nd in Macon, Georgia, when they defeat Ricky Steamboat and Shane Douglas, and you interviewed them right after the match. What'd you think of this title switch here and kind of a uh, passing of the guard? We're anointing, you know, a couple of new guys who've been thrown together, former single stars. Now they're put together as a tag team and it's working. It's kind of reminiscent of what we're seeing these days on WWF TV with uh, Seamus and Cesaro. I thought it was a great move and a great, I, I can't remember the interview to be honest with you, but I, I thought it was the right direction. Um, pretty interesting match here. We've got, uh, March 8th, the Hollywood blondes take on Brad Armstrong and Robbie V Robbie V would later go on to be known as Rob Van Dam. Um, they're working a lot of 30 minute matches here, including some, some to some time limit draws with Douglas and steamboat taking on the blondes. I thought as a tag team, as far as, you know, how these guys could mesh four individual stars being thrown together in tag teams, this was still a phenomenal match, a, a really great feud. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, it was. And listen, individual stars putting together a tag team. Here's an old adage that I don't know fans have heard of, but we all knew in the backstage area to be a great tag team. You first had to be great individual stars, right? Rick Flair was a great individual star. And Greg, the Hamburg Valentine was a great individual star and they were a great tag team. So that was the old adage. And that's why it worked on April 6th on worldwide. They did a computer contenders challenge. Uh, and the gimmick here is this computer is supposed to have a bunch of stats and info input into it. And then the computer will decide who the number one contender was. Uh, and that's going to be Scorpio and Bagwell. Uh, that's who the computer says should be the number one contender for the tag titles. So they wrestled the blinds to a draw that night. Whose fucking idea was this? Is this Dusty's idea? Uh, yeah, it is. What's wrong with it? <laughs> Nothing. Just <laughs> okay. put, put it in the uh, computer, you know, baby. Let I, the computer I, I'm trying to think, you know, wrestle. well, I, I'm just trying to think that you got to come up with something and why not give a reason for a match? Uh, Slamboree 93 goes down on May 23rd. The blinds are going to defeat Dos Hombres in a cage to retain the tag titles. Pillman works the match with a broken nose. And during uh. the match, they show two guys in the crowd 
that you and Zabisco talked about. It's actually Jesse Ventura's agent, Barry Bloom, and Mitch Ackerman of Disney's television. Uh, a few weeks prior to the TV, a mass team from Mexico went to a draw with the Blondes, and then the next week they defeated the Blondes. So after the match, during an interview with you, Steamboat unmasked to reveal it was him, uh, and he said the other one was Douglas, but he didn't unmask. Douglas has said that he told WCW he wasn't going to be there, but they kept advertising that he would be. So they came up with this Dos Hombres gimmick and put Tom Zink, yes, the fucking Z-Man, under the mask. Uh, and they kept referring on TV as if it was Douglas. And Douglas has said the night of the pay-per-view, he was in a store, and a fan came up to him and said, I just <laughs> saw you on TV. What do you remember about this Del Sombre's thing and the Shane Douglas situation and the masks? This feels like a giant cluster. Yeah. Uh, what we did was make the best out of a giant cluster. Back then, this is during the Kip Fry era. When Kip Fry, uh, and this was kind of the transition between uh, Jim Hurd and Kip Fry. Uh, no, or I guess not Jim Hurd and Kip Fry. Uh, Bill Watson, Kip Fry. And uh, we would go to Kip Fry's cabin in uh, Dawsonville, Georgia. Me and Dusty, Magnum TA, and Jim Ross and I, and come up with ideas. Uh, Dusty being the final say in all of this. And you just had to uh, do what you could to make things work, even in the, the midst of a clusterfuck. Sometimes clusterfucks work. Um, next, up. I mean, you know, you could, there's probably people out there that are saying, you know, uh, uh, Conrad Thompson and Tony Schiavone's uh, podcast is a clusterfucking at times, but Hey, it fucking works. Right. It works when the blinds went on to Ric Flair's talk show, a flair for the gold oh, during the interview, of- the blinds really start to insult Rick and Arn's age. They refer to Arn as a statue. Tell Rick to calm down before he blows the pacemaker. Wow. Uh, this is to set up a match of course, but I kind of find it funny because I think Arn was like 34 or 35 at the time this was being filmed and they're, they're poking fun at how old he is. And he's only like, seven years older than Steve Austin. This was a good business though, but I take it. You didn't really like it. Who me? I didn't really like it. I don't or know. They didn't when, like I, when I teed up their appearance on flair for the gold, you made an audible grunt. Well, no, I, here's why I made an audible grunt, not about the angle and not about the age difference. The flair for the gold was a clusterfuck from day one. <laughs> We're speaking to clusterfucks. And do you know why it was a clusterfuck from day one? No. Okay. Everybody had their own lavalier mic. And they all talked at fucking the same time. That's why you should always have one guy working a mic when you have a bunch of wrestlers, because you point to this guy, he talks, you point to this guy, he talks. But if everybody's got a lavalier, then everybody talks at the same time. Uh, as much money as, as we had end up spending for the, the flair for the gold set and the Fifi the maid and all that stuff, I, I would look back on those things thinking that I just from, I'm looking from a production standpoint that I all, I thought they were all clusterfucks. Not long after this, the blondes do a flare for the old. This is a parody of Ric Flair's flare for the gold and Pillman would be dressed up in a wig here, walking with a cane and he interviews Austin. They also had someone imitating Fifi. Of course, eventually Arn comes out, punches Austin, throws him in the ring and they fight. 
until Pillman comes in and hits Arn with the cane, which brings Flair out who chased the blondes away. Austin says that everything they did here was ad-libbed and it got them legit heat with the office because they were so good at it. It sort of turned them baby face to the crowd. Do you remember that? No, I don't remember getting heat with the office. I just remember it being good shit. And I think everybody, at least from my vantage point, liked it. Uh, this is very soon after. Can I, can I ask, you know, uh, and, and I know that, that Austin has well-documented his career when he says legit hit with the office, who would the office be? I don't know. Would it, would it be the booker? So I'm going to, I'm going to give you a Tony Schiavone answer. The booking committee. Okay. Thank you. Um, how do you think Arn and Rick enjoyed working with the blondes here? I think they really enjoyed working with them. I, I, I don't, the, the age thing, uh, if it in fact, uh, upset Arn and Rick, I thought they made the most of it. No, I can't imagine I, they gave a shit about that. I mean, Arn, right. right. Yeah. Brian Pillman's like three or four years younger than Arn Anderson. Sure. So. Absolutely. Um, this is the, I don't know that everybody knows this, but a flair for the gold was really designed to keep Rick on TV before he could contractually wrestle. He was coming off that WWF run and he still had to mind his P's and Q's, so to speak with that contract. So very quickly, once he's able to wrestle, he's working with Steve Austin and Brian Pillman here. Um, Brian Pillman kind of had the reputation at the time of being the promo man of the tag team. And Steve credits a lot of this to Brian's commitment to learning new words. He says whenever they would travel, he would carry along a vocabulary book just to work out new words. Did you think at this time that Pillman was a stronger promo than Austin? Yeah, I thought Pillman was a guy that carried the promos, and I thought that's kind of the way that they wanted it. Uh, To me, it it reminded me, really, um, put this in your Google machine, it reminded me of the Briscoes that uh, Jerry Briscoe all did most of the talking and Jack just, you know, stood in the background and would say something now and then. Now, of course, uh, certainly Austin said a lot more than Jack Briscoe said during those promos back then, but it seemed like me that, that Pillman carried it and Pillman carried about his, he carried about his, his rap. He carried about what he had to say. And it showed again, it goes back to the old adage. The more you care, the more effort you put into your gimmick, the more you're going to get out of it. Clash of the Champions 23 goes down June 17th. We finally get this Rick and Arn match uh, where the horsemen, so to speak, with Rick Flair and Arn Anderson are going to take on Brian Pillman and Steve Austin, the Hollywood Blondes, and a two out of three falls match. Rick and Arn win by DQ uh, because Wyndham interferes in the second fall. So the Blondes actually retain the titles. Do you recall if there was ever any consideration to putting the tag titles on Rick and Arn? That would have been something different. That would have been different, but I don't think that was ever a consideration. June 22nd, Paul Roma pins Steve Austin on WCW Saturday night. Your comment, mm. Tony Schiavone. Yeah. Yeah. What the fuck were we thinking? Beach Blast 93, we see the blinds defeat uh, Anderson and Roma. We've covered that one uh, in long form. These airbrush t-shirts that they're sporting don't have anything on the shirt available at LoisRules.com where you can show off your love of Tony Schiavone. And Tom Zink, um, clash of the champions, 24, August 18th. We would see Austin, uh, team with Lord Steven Regal, and he's actually subbing for an injured Brian Pillman and they lose the tag titles to Arn and Roma. I find it interesting that they're going to do a title switch here and Pillman's not there. It seems a little weird. Does it not? Yeah, it does. Goodness. 
Uh, Austin says that they uh, traveled as a trio, uh, and we covered that a minute ago, that it was Brian Pillman, Steve Austin, and, of course, Raven, and they called themselves the comedy trio, and they were constantly trying to crack everybody up and create their own little comedy league, comedy league in the company, uh, and they have a tournament to crown the champion of the comedy league, <laughs> and in the tournament, it was Austin... Uh, Brian Pillman, Raven, Kevin Nash, Cactus Jack, Tex Slazinger, who we would know as Midian, Shanghai Pierce, who we would know as Henry Godwin, and Dan Spivey. Evidently, uh, Kevin Nash wins the tournament and is crowned the Comedy League heavyweight champion. You ever hear about this? I never did. This is the first time I've heard about it, but let me say this. The right champion won it. Mm -hmm. No doubt. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. Yeah. September 25th, Steve gets a win over Arn Anderson. The next night, he drops a win to the British Bulldog. And on October 11th, this is kind of fun, Rick and Arn are wrestling Vader and Steve Austin to a 35-minute no contest. It's supposed uh. to be Sid and Rick, but as they're entering the ring, the Awesome Kongs attack Sid on the outside of the ring, so Arn replaces him in the match. What are your memories of this? It kind of uh. feels like quite the, uh, the combination here. Vader and Austin against Rick and Arn. I have no memories of this match. My God. Around this same time, Colonel Robert Parker, who came in several months earlier as Sid's manager, starts to make overtures to Steve about becoming his manager. The blondes are still together, but Parker starts to approach Steve during blonde interviews, trying to talk to Steve, but just totally ignoring blonde, uh, Brian. And uh, we see kind of the tease of the split. Halloween Havoc 1993 happens where Dustin Rhodes gets a win over Steve to retain the U.S. title. Uh, and then afterwards, Austin lays him out with the belt after the match. So even though they haven't broken up yet, we're still heading that direction because he's working singles matches. Uh, the Blondes would defeat Chris Sullivan and Chris Kern on a television match. And after the match, you were ringside interviewing the Blondes when Parker comes out and starts to uh, talk about how much he really wanted to have Steve Austin and how Steve Austin beat both of those guys by himself. Pillman takes great offense to this. Parker insults him. So, of course, Pillman starts to beat up Parker when Steve finally has enough and attacks Brian and leaves him laying. And Austin has said they, had, they felt like they had just started to get hot. They didn't want to split up. He wanted to stay in this tag team, and he felt like WCW made a mistake by splitting up the Hollywood Blondes. Uh, they were arguably one of the most over tag teams that WCW had had in years, maybe going back to the Steiner brothers. Uh, they were voted the wrestling observer tag team of the year in 1993. In hindsight, do you think it was a mistake to break them up? And whose idea was this? It was a mistake to break them up. And that's in hindsight, uh, because they are one of the great tag teams ever in WCW. If you think about it. Sure. But the feeling was, is that the best way to break them up would be if someone would try to drive a wedge in between them. And that wedge was Colonel Robert Parker. Yeah, it was a mistake because they were tremendous and they were a great tag team. And again, they worked hard on their gimmick. Uh, they had good promos. They could bump, they could sell, they could do everything. And, uh, and they liked each other as well. You know, there's a lot uh, down through history. There's a lot of great tag teams. They really didn't like each other. This was not the case here. Clash of the Champions 25 goes down November 10th, 1993. Austin gets a win over Brian Pillman. 
And uh, you would think after having a successful tag team run here, you would think there's going to be a long feud here. They have one match. This is it. No rematches, no pay-per-views, no follow-up at all. Does that make any sense to you? Was Brian just in the doghouse? Why would they not pursue multiple matches with this? I'm thinking it's because Brian was probably in the doghouse at this time. I mean, logically, you would think they would have uh, move on with it. I mean, you could have done a lot with these two, right? I mean, the, sure. the natural progression would be to have a match, then have a, have a no disqualification match, and then have a cage match. I mean, you could have really played this out if you stop and think about it, but apparently Brian was on the outs. Austin goes on a winning streak on television. Uh, he gets wins over Scorpio and then he's in a six man with Orndorff and rude beating Armstrong, uh, and some enhancement talent at battle bowl. He's teaming with flair to take on Scorpio and max Payne. flair and uh, Austin would advance to the battle Royal later in the pay-per-view. Of course, that was won by Vader. A fairly interesting team here, Austin and Flair. You got to think Rick was fairly high on Austin for him to put himself in all these matches with him. Do you recall having any sort of conversation with Rick about working with Steve at this time? Well, I think that Rick considered Austin one of the great, uh, I don't know if up-and-coming stars by this time is correct, but one of the great stars in WCW at that time. And uh, Rick had a lot of... uh, respect for him. And by putting uh, flair and Austin together, it also helped Austin get that rub of being able to work side by side with a guy like Ric Flair. WCW Saturday night on November 30th, we would see Steve get a win over Brian Armstrong. Armstrong, of course, would later go on to be known as the road dog. A week later on Saturday night, he would actually get a win over sting, but by DQ when Brian Pillman would interfere and attack Steve. Uh, and then they're even working on Christmas again. Uh, Brian Pillman is losing to Steve Austin. I don't know why it was so common to work on Christmas here, but it was two days it's later. Always, it was always a big payday. Normally a big payday. Two days later, Starcade 93, we see Steve beat Dustin in a two out of three falls match to win the United States title. Austin won the first fall by DQ and then Dustin pinned him in the second fall and beat him two straight. Um, Are you surprised that, you know, this is a situation where Steve beats him too straight like this? No, I'm not surprised. I'll tell you why I'm not surprised. Because when you have a two out of three fall match. Everybody expects it to go to three. That's right. Yeah. So you change it up. Mm -hmm. I get it. Um, Flair's working with Austin on uh, December 30th and gets a win over Austin. And then let's cruise on into 94. January 3rd, he starts the year out working against hard work Bobby Walker. What's your favorite (laughs) Bobby Walker match? No comment. Pleading the the fifth here. Under advice of my lawyer, I will not come on another match. He's back working against Flair on the 10th uh, on Saturday night. It's Flair Sting and the boss taking on Austin Rude and Simmons. And then the next night, he beats Terry Taylor. Uh, The following week. Pillman pins Austin in a non-title match. And then the last shot in January was the 31st. Pillman, Sting, and Rhodes beat Austin Regal and the Mongolian Mauler. What's your favorite Mongolian Mauler match? I liked the Mongolian Mauler when he was uh, the manager back in the 70s of the Mongolian Stompers. Uh, No, I'm sorry, of the Mongols. Remember the Mongols? No. Okay. 
he was the manager of the Mongols. So they didn't really use Mongolian Mahler that much because he had gotten very old at that time. I think Mongolian Mahler was about 87 the time we started using him here. So story, that's why we didn't use him much. In storyline, Colonel Robert Parker has brought him in to take out Pillman. He's not around very long. Right. Uh, yeah. Super Brawl 4, we go to February 20th. This is the Thunder Cage. Tony, what do you remember about the Thunder Cage at Super Brawl? Uh, the, what I remember about the Thunder Cage at Super Brawl was that I have no memory of the Thunder Cage of Super Brawl. Pillman Sting and Rhodes would defeat Austin, Rude, and Orndorff. Hope everybody's enjoying me reading results. Uh, <laughs> what well, are you trying to say? Well, you're fucking, I don't remember. I, don't, I can just say this shit. Well, I don't. Look, button. hang on a second. Whoa, time out. Super Brawl 4, Thunder Cage. I think, I think Jim Ross and Jesse Ventura did the commentary for that. Maybe wrong. So I don't remember as well matches. So if you didn't do commentary on it, you didn't watch it. Right. Yeah. Right. I didn't. Okay. Yeah. Uh, why do you think Austin and sting never happened on a pay-per-view? It, they worked a lot of house shows together, but it never really makes a featured singles match. You know, they're working lots of six mans and tag teams and stuff like that, but it's never just sting versus Austin. Yeah, it was a mistake. Why it happened. I'm, I'm sure it, it didn't have anything to do with their personalities because I know they enjoyed working with each other. So I, I don't know why, uh, something like that would happen. I mean, it did happen in the finals of the U S tournament that we went down a minute right. ago, but I just mean, it feels like they could have had a continued singles feud that could have had a pay-per-view payoff. No question. Uh, let's talk about, uh, the observer. We've made it this whole time mm -hmm. and not talking about it too much. February 24th, 1994 edition. Uh, here's what Dave wrote. Some question regarding the futures of Steve Austin, Brian Pillman, and Ron Simmons. The first two have contracts that expire shortly. Austin is known to be coveted by Titan and apparently wants a raise from his current $190,000 deal. Pillman has a deal in the $240,000 range, and there is some question as to whether they'll try to cut his salary down. Simmons is working without a contract and actually has been for some time. Uh, kind of a glimpse into the future here. Do you think that there was any sort of concern with Ron Simmons working without a contract? It seems uncommon at the time that a guy would just be working on a one shot or, or handshake deal. That's boy. That is news to me. I, uh, why that had to be some, uh, some oversight by, by the company. Don't you think? I don't know. It does feel weird, but you know, it, it I mean, does. It's, it sounds like if he is working without a contract, and as you say, as uh, Dave Meltzer says, actually has been for some time, somebody's fucked up somewhere. Yeah, you would think. But, you know, I mean, if you think about it, Rick Rude was working on a per night deal when he was able to leave WWF and just show up on Nitro. So stranger things have happened, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. On March 12th, on uh, Saturday night, Austin wrestled Steamboat with the winner facing Flair for the world title at Spring Stampede. Of course, we know how this works. Stampede uh, would be Steamboat Flair because Steamboat wins here by DQ when Parker comes to the ring and attacks Steamboat. Um, at that show, instead, though, we get something that I think a lot of people probably forget ever happened. It's April 17th, 1994, and Austin defeats the great Muda by DQ when Muda backdrops him over the top rope. Kind of a dream match when you think about Stone Cold Steve Austin wrestling the great Muda. 
But what a fucking lame finish for being DQ'd for backdropping him over the top rope. What'd you think yeah. of this? Lame finish. And I do, I do remember that match. Uh, just uh, absolutely lame. I agree. Uh, but a- the match itself leading up to that was a solid match. There's an update in the observer, uh, a couple of weeks later about Brian Pillman and Steve Austin. He says their future has to be considered murky. Pillman's contract expired a few weeks ago. He's fulfilling his commitments through the pay-per-view show, but isn't on the booking sheets after April 17th. And the sides were far apart enough on figures. Uh, supposedly they wanted a serious pay cut about $60,000. Um, so he'd be going from like 250 down to 190. And that deal is just not going to happen. Uh, Austin was on the booking sheets through the end of May, but his contract would expire well before that. And he wanted a significant raise and WCW offered him a cut and pay as well. Uh, so they're coming off being probably the most over tag team, uh, in, in the whole industry and they're not old. They feel like they've got options. So it looks to be a situation where maybe, uh, they may be looking to make a move. And here's the line from Meltzer. Obviously the line is there is a mandate. The company has to cut back on wrestler salaries because of how much money it has lost over the years, which is believable, but it's hard to justify that to some wrestlers when the amount being offered to Hogan is probably as much as the total combined salary per year of everyone being asked to take a pay cut, not to mention the added expense of announcers and renovating center stage. Oakland on the hotline acknowledged Austin's problem and said he may be departing WCW for parts unknown reports. We've gotten seem to indicate there will be some attempt to sign Austin, but the Pillman's leaving is pretty much acknowledged. If one or the other leave, the only viable options would be the WWF all Japan or the Indies. So there is a moment here where there's some upheaval from the undercard guys who are being offered pay cuts when they see Oakland coming in, they see the TV studios being revamped and most importantly, Hogan's coming in and for huge money and everybody knows it. You remember hearing murmurs of there being some backlash from guys who maybe didn't have a problem with Hogan, but certainly didn't want him to come in if it meant a pay cut. Of course that was uh, well known that people were upset that Hogan would be coming in making a lot of money. Now, Melcher went on to say that the amount Hogan being offered is probably, and I'm going to stress that word, probably as much as a total combined salary per year of everyone being asked to take a cut. Everybody reads the dirt sheets. Not everybody, but most guys read the dirt sheets and they read that line that says probably as much as a total combined salary of everyone being asked to take a pay cut. And then that becomes fact. Right. And that helps undermine what Eric is trying to do. So you can see where Melter freestyling here becomes fact in the dressing room and it's not good for business. I'm not saying that I was favor of Hogan coming in, making all this money, but let's face it. And I, this is not a, a podcast about Hogan, but Hogan coming in certainly turned us around. So let's talk about kind of the different bosses that Austin has had during his tenure here. You know, Dusty was kind of calling the shots. Flair was kind of calling the shots. Bill Watts is kind of calling the shots. And now it's a totally new ball game. Eric Bischoff's calling the shots. Do you know 
you know, could you venture a guess who he enjoyed working with the most, who he didn't get along with the most? Can you give us any sort of insight there as to how he may have liked the management style of each? Not so sure. Well, I, I'm not so sure he liked the management style of Eric Bischoff. Eric became very, very combative at times. Uh, people reacted to that, his style very differently. Um, I would think that he liked working for Dusty better than anybody else. Just on the surface. Both Pillman and Austin wind up meeting with Titan and kind of test the waters with all Japan as well. And it seems like they're out of here, but all of a sudden Bischoff pulls it off and he gets them both to sign two year contracts. Uh, Meltzer wrote, it is believed Austin's contract calls for 200 dates minimum at the present rate. WCW won't book 200 shows. So he'll get his minimum and it's $1,000 per show. So he's going to get bumped up from $190,000 base to a $200,000 base. What'd you think of this is, is managing to keep Austin and Pillman here a good thing for WCW? Yeah, of course it is. They're great performers, singles and tag team. Why not? Now, are they happy? Well, does this make them happy? I mean, look, if, if you're meeting with Titan Sports, one thinks that you're you're exploring your options, but you may not be that happy. Well, I mean, he couldn't have been happy thinking he was going to get a bigger singles push than he did. Now, of course, here he's the U.S. champion, so maybe that's different. And I'm sure he's tickled on May 7th on Worldwide to be wrestling Johnny B. Bad in a tuxedo match. What are your memories <laughs> of Johnny B. Bad and Steve Austin in a tuxedo match? Yeah, it was silly as hell, but it's worldwide. Okay, it's worldwide. It's buried in worldwide. Slambury 94, we would see Austin beat Johnny B. Bad to retain the U.S. title. All right. And Clash of the Champions 25, we get Johnny B. Bad beating Austin by DQ, so Austin retains the title. Bash at the Beach 94, Austin would pin Steamboat to retain the U.S. title. And Meltzer really likes the match and called it a classic. Um, he gave it three and three-quarter stars. He wrote that he thought Steamboat was the best performer on the card. Uh, what do you think of this match? It feels like this match is the one a lot of people talk about of Steve Austin's WCW run, his match here at Bash at the Beach 94 against Steamboat. Yeah, it was, it was a great match. And this was a match that, if I recall, me and Bobby the Brain Heenan did. And what I remember about it is it did what great matches do. When you go 20 minutes and he says, he being Meltzer says it starts slow. Well, you can't all start every match fast. You got to kind of build a story as it goes along. Uh, it was the best match on the card. It didn't have the excitement of Flair and Hogan, which is what everything was building towards, but it was the best match on the card. Steamboat comes off the top with a uh, cross body block, but Austin reverses the move and holds the trunks. And that's how he gets the win. I right. should mention somewhere around here is when Austin and Colonel Parker split up without any real explanation, but you did say on commentary during one of Boston's matches that Parker felt it was better for Austin just to focus on his own career. What's the deal here? Uh, why was this duo separated? I, I don't know. Uh, there had been talk that Austin did not like working with Parker. Have you heard that story? I can't imagine that he did. Yeah. Uh, that was kind of the general feeling back then. And that was just us back, uh, thinking or a uh, freestyling that was 
was happening. I, I, I didn't get anything, any confirmation from anybody that I knew, but I, I think that Austin felt that Parker was holding his career as a singles guy down. Uh, it's also important to remember that, uh, while Austin may not have enjoyed working with Parker, a lot of the ladies did, and mm. they attended Parker's jumper up Academy. And that sure is available right now over at lowestrules.com. on July 9th, 1994 on Saturday night, there's an angle done where the fans get to call in and vote for the main event of the show. And of course they've got everybody separated by, you know, baby faces in one locker room, heels in another. When they show the heel locker room, you can see Steve Austin standing very close to a guy named John Paul Levesque, who we now know as Triple H. Uh, and they're both here in WCW in 1994. Yeah. Sting and Ric Flair wind up winning the voting there, of course. On uh, July 19th, Rick and Austin would beat Sting and Steamboat. This is a pretty famous tag match. It's even on one of Austin's DVDs from the WWE. And process just the level of talent here. Two of the greatest of all time with Ricky Steamboat and Ric Flair on opposite ends. And then their tag partners on one side of Steve Austin, on the other side, Sting. Four of the greats, all-time greats, biggest stars in the business. I mean, some people may even have that as their Mount Rushmore. What do you remember of this match? Well, that was back when WCW Saturday Night meant something. And we were trying to elevate WCW Saturday Night and give them a tremendous main event. And we did. Uh I can't remember who went over, but I can remember the excitement leading up to that event and to that show. Clash of the Champions 28, uh, Steamboat finally gets his win over Steve Austin for the U.S. title. They have been working together for seemingly months on the house shows. And Austin had a very long U.S. title run here, nine months. And it is kind of interesting to note that Steamboat is the guy who beat him for both the television title and the U.S. title. Steamboat really helped bring along Austin as being one of the great performers in the business. Wouldn't you agree? Yes, I do. Uh, fall brawl goes down on September 18th. It's supposed to be a rematch between steamboat and Austin, but steamboat suffers a back injury that winds up ending his entire career. So the title is given back to Austin in the ring. And this is the thing we got the most questions about, uh, commissioner Bachwinkle then announces that he has to defend it against hacksaw Jim Duggan right there, right then. And Duggan pins Austin in 35 seconds to win the U S title. So after you've spent nine months building him up, you've got uh. this Austin feud going, he's got a lot of momentum. Ho beats mm. him in 35 seconds. Is this a fucking yeah. rib? Yeah. Well, uh, that was, it was, that sucked. Look, do you think you want to freestyle here a second? Do you yep. think because he's a friend of Hogan's that happened that way? I wasn't going to say that, but yes, I think that's what most of us believe. Okay. All right. That's the first thing I think of. Well, it makes me happy that you inside the business felt the same way too. How did Steve yep. feel? Steve had to feel like this was oh. just a giant piece yeah, of he, shit. He was freaking miserable as well. He should be. Hey, yeah. look, we all like hacksaw Jim Duggan. And the old thing is, okay, if you do the job quickly, it's not going to hurt you. You ever heard that old adage in the business? Yeah. Okay. So, but it was still just, it wasn't good. It was a bad weekend for Steve. Not only does he get awarded the U S title and then lose it to Duggan in 35 seconds on Sunday, the day before his house flooded. So probably one of the worst weekends of his life. Uh, mm. it was reported in the observer that Sherry Martell was in talks of managing Steve Austin with the idea being that he was going to get a bit of a character makeover and then finally be pushed 
as a top single star in the main event position, but with Sherry as his heater. Do you remember those discussions happening? Uh, yes, I do. It actually came to fruition in November. We would see Sherry manage Austin at a set of Disney tapings. And Austin was trying to work more like Ric Flair here. A lot of the similar mannerisms. And, um, you know, it's one of those weird deals where because he's positioned himself with Sherry Martell and he's doing the mannerisms, a lot of people assume this is going to lead to a really big feud with Flair Austin in a top spot. Uh, Halloween Havoc, uh, before we, I guess I skip this, Halloween Havoc was more bad news for Steve Austin. Duggan gets the win by DQ here, and he spends all the house shows are Duggan Austin, and Duggan's winning them all. So they say they're going to groom him and repackage him and put him with Sherry Martell, but first, he's losing around the horn to Jim Duggan. Ultimately, though, this flare push never really happens. It never comes to fruition. Do you know what may have, what may have caused that to kind of stop and start? Well, Conrad and, and also all you slapdicks out there that follow the business and follow the inside part of the business. I'm going to freestyle here a little bit. Okay. Okay. Have you ever heard of being tested? Yes. Okay. And this, uh, I was told that Vince McMahon was famous for doing this, put you in situations that you didn't like. Just to that see you, how you react. See you react. And if you reacted the right way, then you would continue to move on up the ladder, so to speak. If you didn't react the right way, then you would stay status quo or move down a little bit. That could have been what was going on here. To me, that was the only thing logically in my fucking mind that I think that the, why they continue to put Duggan over Steve Austin as a test that, or Hogan had so much stroke and that was it. That's the only thing I can think of here. Clash of the champions, 29. November 16th, Duggan beats Austin again in 54 Mm. seconds, but Vader interferes here. And this happens because Austin has hurt his knee and he winds up wearing a knee brace in the match. And he appears to be limping pretty heavily after the match and doesn't wrestle again for the rest of 1994. Um, I guess he blew out his match on the 14th in Sarasota. Uh, and, and he's probably not too torn up about being off the road, given that he's putting over Hacksaw Jim Duggan. Uh, well, let, let me, let me correct you there. I think that, you know, being taken off the road and being put against Hacksaw Jim Duggan, he's probably not upset about that, but as a performer. Oh yeah. He wants to be out you, there. Yeah. He wants to be able to wrestle. You worry about your career moving forward, blowing out your knee can be a very serious injury and can end your career. Let's, um, I guess we should just mention that it's, it's sort of kind of teased when you backtrack through some of here that Austin might wrestle flair at some point for the world title. And this happens when Austin was the U S champion. And then everything changes because Hogan comes in and very quickly Austin loses the U S title and he's pushed down the card. And when Austin would wind up going to WCW, he would turn to ECW, he would wear the, the Steve Amania tearaway t-shirt and cut promos right. like Hulk Hogan. He kind of points to Hogan coming in as being the beginning of the end of his run in WCW, where he's on his way up. He's U S champion. There's talk about him challenging for 
Flair's world title. Hogan comes in. Everything's different. Do you think he right. has a fair argument there? Well, I think he's right on. I think you can uh, connect the dots on all of that and see exactly what happened. Steve Austin could have been the focus of our company. A lot but of, now Hulk, Hulk Hogan was. A lot of people would probably be listening to this podcast now and hear, oh, he's losing to Duggan. Uh, he, he's hurt now. Is this legitimate? Is Steve putting on a show? It's very legitimate. It comes out in the Observer uh, that he's going to be out eight months to a year because he was diagnosed with two um, torn posterior ligaments and he's going to need major reconstructive surgery. But he's supposed to get a second opinion. But either way, it's a big deal because you've got Flair who just lost the retirement match, Steamboat who's just been injured and now can't wrestle, and now Austin's out for a year. All of a sudden, they're scrambling, looking around for, hey, what can we put together? Uh, Austin does wind up coming back, though, on February 3rd, 1995, where he beat Bagwell on Worldwide. And Meltzer wrote of the match, Austin needed 12 stitches in his eye after a mistake in the ring. He didn't wrestle the remainder of the week. He's expected to be back in the ring shortly, although nobody seems to think with much of a push. So after being out for a little bit and much faster return than everybody expected because the injury bug has bit WCW, he gets injured in his very first match back. It just feels like he's just kind of having quite the fucking shit storm with luck here, right? Yeah, he's having shit storm of luck and the promotion is as well. But sometimes you uh, earn your own luck. Let me say this for Austin to come back in February when just a few months earlier, he was diagnosed with two torn PCLs. Yeah. It's, it's, it's wrong to do that. It's absolutely wrong to do that. You are going to now damage your career. One would think moving forward. If you say, okay, I'm not going to have knee surgery. I'm going to just tough through it. Look, football players miss entire year. Baseball players miss entire year when they blow out their knee. And they take that time coming back. And with the exception of football players, think about all the pressure and all the damage that goes into a knee when you hit the mat. Uh, this was the wrong thing for him to do, man. And I, I, I can't say whether he was pushed back too soon or that he wanted to come back too soon, but it was the wrong thing. Well, and he wound up working you know, in the WWF with, with knee braces on both knees for right. a, lo- a huge chunk of his career. Um, he even referred to him, I think this is Forrest Gump braces. Yeah. Well, uh, that's because he came back too soon. February 24th through the 26th, uh, the stars and stripes are beating Austin and, and Regal stars and stripes are the Patriot and Bagwell. Uh, he's getting enhancement title or, or enhancement match wins over Tim Horner, Kenny Kendall. And he actually gets a win over Bagwell on worldwide on the 18th of March, but on the 21st of March, Alex Wright would beat Austin by DQ. And then Alex Wright would team with Johnny B. Bad to beat Austin and Arn on March 21st, which feels like a fucking rib. Uh, the mm-hmm. next day, uh, Saturday night, Sting pins Austin, uh, and they do another taping while they're there. Bad and Wright would beat Austin and Arn again. So now he's losing on TV pretty regularly. But there is a U.S. title tournament on April 23rd, and finally, Austin would pin Duggan. Uh, and it's kind of a big deal because... He lost every time that he faced Jim Duggan up until this point. 
He lost on March 23rd, 24th, 25th, 30th, and 31st. He has to wait till April 23rd to finally get the win. Uh, and then he's pinned uh, a few minutes later in the United States title tournament by Randy Savage. So we're not quite back where we want to be, brother. Um, <laughs> the May 15th Observer would report that Austin refused to do a job for the Renegade. And then the following week, Dave wrote this. Steve Austin had his meeting with Eric Bischoff early in the week and everything was worked out. Austin was pretty well forced because anything else would have killed Ric Flair's authority as Booker to do the job for Renegade at the TV tapings on May 10th at center stage and do another in two minutes for Randy Savage on April or May 11th in the U.S. title tournament. There was a lot of talk in the exchange that they would reform the Hollywood Blondes with a push, but that hasn't happened yet. So eventually, uh, he just says enough is enough. I'm done with the shit. (laughs) And I find it interesting because on May 11th, you see Sting, Renegade, and Alex Wright process who I just said. Sting, Renegade, and Alex Wright beat Austin Flair and Arn by DQ. So yeah. it's just Austin's just snake bit at this point. What do you remember of this meeting he had with Eric Bischoff? Well, I kind of was. Uh, are you talking about the when uh, Bischoff let him go when he fired him? No, I'm talking about where he pacifies him and he goes out and does the job. And I find it interesting that Flair and Austin. Are you know, he's always said, Austin has always said that Flair's his absolute favorite wrestler and they're, they're great friends today, but here, you know, Flair is being the guy that they're pointing at saying, well, you're losing the renegade because Flair booked it. Mm-hmm. And yet Bischoff has to sell it and, and Bischoff is a hell of a salesman. So he sells it. So after losing to Duggan 987 times, he goes and does it for renegade too. How do you think Eric was able to schmooze things over here with Austin? Well, first of all, Steve is a pro and we, we have discovered this. If you, if you go back and, and take a look at some of the things that we've talked about, Steve wrestling through injuries, coming back too soon, agreeing to do this job, agreeing to do that job. He's a pro and Eric knew that I'm not going to try to defend any booking decisions because we're talking about the fucking renegade, right? I mean, fuck the renegade. Um, we're talking about that. But I can tell you that we are, and, and you know this, we're now looking back on this, thinking about one of the great stars in the business being forced to all these jobs. And we're looking at it long term. A lot of times they have to look at it short term. And they don't always think about what is best for Steve at that time or what is best for this guy at this time, sometimes they have to think about what they think is best for business on the short term. And again, we're getting to the problem here of having to put too many matches on television that means something. And when you put too many matches on television that means something, a lot of times guys who never should do a job on TV end up doing a job on TV. And I know you'll say, why Austin? Well, Austin was a pro. Does this all make sense to you? It does. Um, Okay. Of course, the blondes never had a chance to reform because the next month they're doing a tour in Japan and Austin jumps off the ropes to deliver a splash and he lands wrong on his right arm and he winds up tearing his right tricep off his elbow. 
he still wrestled for two and a half weeks with a torn tricep and a sore knee. But when he returns to the States, he has to get surgery to reattach the tricep to the arm. While he's out of action, he sometimes goes down to the WCW Saturday night tapings to visit the boys and watch the matches. And during one such visit, he passes Kevin Sullivan in the hallway. They had some small talk and Austin says he felt like for whatever reason, Kevin Sullivan didn't like him. And Steve felt like Sullivan played some sort of role in what's about to happen to him. Not too long after this meeting, Austin gets a call from Janie Engel, who works for Eric Bischoff as his assistant. And she tells Steve to give Eric a call. And Austin says he knows what's going to happen. Eric says something like, I just want to let you know, based on the amount we're paying you and based on the number of dates you've been incapacitated, we're going to exercise our right to terminate the agreement. So Steve clarifies, well, basically you're telling me I'm fired, right? And Eric says, yes. So the next day, Steve gets his termination papers by FedEx and he's out of a $300,000 a year job. And Steve has said that he was pissed by how he was fired. He said he lived 30 miles from the CNN center and he felt like it should have happened face to face. And he says sometime before he was fired, Eric said something like, you know, Steve, you might need to find something else to do for a living or somewhere else to go. Maybe new Japan or ECW, because you go out there in those black trunks and black boots. And there's not a whole lot of ways for me to market that. And Steve then said something like Eric believed he would amount to nothing and never thought he would amount to anything and fires him. Um, of course, in hindsight, all these years later, Austin realizes that was a blessing and, and turned out to be one of the best days of his career. Right. But it's hard to believe that when you're losing a $300,000 gig. Now I want to ask this because I know you've kind of teased this before. There's rumor and innuendo that not long before he was fired, you called his house and his wife answered. And you told her that Eric wanted him to come in and do interviews. And she told you he wasn't there, but you could hear Austin in the background saying something dismissive. What actually happened? And what do you remember about Steve Austin getting fired? Uh, first of all, let me say that, uh, as far as Kevin Sullivan is concerned, I perceived, and you know, I know Sully's got a, a podcast of his own. I had perceived heat between Austin and Kevin Sullivan. It's just the way I heard Sullivan talk about Austin. Um, I can't give you actual verbiage of what was said, but I know there was something there. I agree with Steve on that. So there may be something more to the story that we don't know about. Uh, We were at center stage and I'm helping produce interviews at that time. And Steve apparently was supposed to be there to do some interviews and was not there. And Eric said, would you get in touch? I don't know why he asked me going back to this. Would you get in touch with Steve? And I said, yes, I will. So there was a pay phone in the back at center stage and I called and Jeannie picked up and I said, Jeannie, Steve is not here. Eric wants him to come here and do interviews. And she said, well, he's not here. And then I heard Steve say something in the back. And Jeannie said to me, well, as you can hear, he is here, but he's not coming in or something to the effect. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll tell Eric that. And Eric said, I hung up the phone. Eric said, uh, did you talk to him? I said, no, I talked to lady blossom or Jeannie 
or whomever we, whatever we called it at that time. She said he wasn't there, but then I heard him in the background and she admitted as much that he was here, but said he wasn't going to come in. And Eric said, he's not going to come in. I said, no, he's not. And that's what I remember of that conversation. She was going to just let, tell us that he was not available or not there. And then I heard him in the background and she realized I'd heard him. So she went ahead and admitted as such. And that's how I got involved in that. Being an office stooge, right? So you turn around and you tell Bischoff, how does Bischoff respond to this report? Like, well, Bischoff says, oh, really? I said, yeah, really. And he just shakes his head and walks away. His fate was sealed right then, correct? I think so. So not only, just to be clear, did you disparage the good goddamn name of Cactus Jack, but you also managed to get Steve Austin fired and create the Stone Cold character. I was right. I called it months ago. If you'd have lost 20 pounds and shut your dumb whore mouth, WCW would still be in business. They'd have had Cactus Jack. They'd have had Stone Cold Steve Austin. You'd have looked damn svelte on TV, and Nitro would be the lead dog on Mondays. But now, uh-uh. Well, uh, two things out of this. Number one, go fuck yourself. Uh, and number two, every time I see something from Stone Cold, I'm thinking, that's me. <laughs> I, I did that. <laughs> yeah, you killed WCW, Stone Cold. I, you sure I did. killed WCW, and I made Stone Cold, and I made Mick Foley the fucking stars they are, motherfucker. Shivani 316 says, I'm a tattletale. <laughs> Shivani 316 says I'm an office stooge. Shivani 316 says I am what I shit talk Terry Taylor to be. I love it. So according to the rumor and innuendo, Steve pitched a lot of ideas. Of course, he's constantly pitching himself to work with top guys. He had an angle to work with Hogan. He had an angle to work with Sting. He had an angle to work with Savage. Always declined from Dusty or Flair or Sullivan or Bischoff or whoever. Um Meltzer wrote this WCW did fire Steve Austin on September 15th. Austin 30 was considered for years, perhaps the best young wrestler in the United States. His career languished for the past year, almost to the point that he was spoken of like his former tag team partner, Brian Pillman as a wrestler who made a lot of money by signing good contracts, but had great careers ruined by WCW, an organization that had been both unwilling and unable to get any wrestlers over. Austin had been in the doghouse with WCW management over the past year over a reputation for not exactly keeping quiet with his discontent about how he was used. And for those involved in cost cutting, seeing the $200,000 figure. Or so he was earning per year while not being involved in any significant programs. They viewed it as wasted money while on tour with new Japan in June, Austin tore his tricep and has been out of action since. And he was believed to be about six weeks from being ready to return when he was fired. This, of course, paints WCW as a real class organization for firing a guy while injured when he suffered the injury on tour, the company sent him on. The main problem seems to be the clickish nature of WCW. He didn't hang with the right crowd. When the Hogan camp got into power, they dismissed Austin as a highly paid wrestler who was a good worker with no charisma, and in their view of wrestling, work rate meant next to nothing. The Hogan click basically consisted of WWFers from the mid-80s when wrestling was hot and thus could dismiss any wrestler who came along later as being unable to draw money. He wasn't in the flare click either, so nobody spoke up about his work rate inside the meetings. 
Austin was given little chance to show off his stuff after the career-ending back injury of his main opponent, Rick Steamboat. Austin then suffered a knee injury, which kept him out a few months before he was plugged into a new plan program, a reuniting of his tag team with Brian Pillman. He went to Japan and suffered the tricep tear. It's unknown what Austin's plans will be when he returns to the ring, but he should get a strong spot with ECW if he would want it, since he's a longtime friend of Paul Heyman, although that would entail a major come down in money. So they kind of freestyle that maybe he's got a shot in Japan, but of course we know he winds up in ECW, but I felt like Meltzer really broke it down. And of course I wasn't there. So I want your opinion. I feel like Meltzer really broke down very logically why this didn't work out. He wasn't in Flair's click and he wasn't in Hogan's click. And at the time it was a pretty clear divide, the work rate Flair group and the entertainment Hogan group. And Austin was kind of a man with no country. Is that the way you remember it? Yeah, that's exactly the way it was, uh, with the exception of, uh, and, and I, you know, I'm, I'm listening to what you have to say from Dave Meltzer, and he said, many great wrestlers had their careers ruined by a WCW organization that was unwilling to get any wrestler over. They were willing to. They just didn't know how to do it. Uh, and as we can say, use the old cliche, they didn't know what they had. Unfortunately, WCW was very political backstage, and it was political with, if you want to say it, Hogan's group, and if you want to say Flair's group, sure, you had to be on either side, one would think, uh, which was unfortunate. Uh, but, you know, Conrad, and Austin will be the first one to say this, uh, it worked all, all out for the best because he became one of the greatest stars ever in our sport. I said our sport. Well, thank you for that. What's crazy thank to you think very much. about too, is that happens on September 15th, 1995, yeah. you know, you, less than a year later, Austin 316 was born. Right. And I mean, it was just, it's crazy. Here's the other thing that I found crazy. This is from the same observer we were just covering a few hours later, WCW and Gene Okerlund's agent, Barry Bloom verbally agreed to a two year contract. $250,000. Yikes. So you're firing a that guy was, who's injured. Yeah. Uh, and you're saying, and he got injured working for you, by the way, he wasn't on his dirt bike. He's in, in a ring in Japan and you're firing him because you can't afford his 200,000 trying to cut costs. So you're going to pay the hotline guy $250,000. Okay. That, that's very unfair to call Gene Oakland the hotline guy. Okay. Well, you know, you know, that is, I know it is, but here's what I am saying at the end of the day, you know, when we're talking about your line, butts and seats, right? Did people buy pay-per-views to see Gene Oakland? No, they did not, but he certainly helped sell them. I'm not arguing I, that. I'm not okay. saying he didn't have his place, but I am saying at the end of the day, it's supposed to be about the wrestlers and the performers. And if we're in a, if we're in a legitimate cost cutting measure, even you as a commentator, I think you would agree. It's a little ridiculous when one of your top guys are telling him you can't afford. And while he may not have been positioned to that in the most recent months, he was working with flair. He had been the U S champion. He'd had single matches with sting. I mean, he had something going here and he's not worth it, but we're going to bring in a commentator who I agree added a lot to the show. I'm not arguing Oakland's value. I'm just saying logically, if we're in cost cutting mode, this doesn't make any sense. Would you agree? Yeah. No, I agree. I, uh, 
it, it's wrong. I mean, look, there were probably a lot of wrestlers in WCW at that time that didn't get paid as much as I did. And that's wrong. So, yeah, I, I agree with that. I absolutely agree with it. It was, uh, it was bad business. You think about all the guys who went through WCW before they were superstars, Raven, edge, Kane, Scott Hall, um, Kevin Nash, cactus, Jack, lots big of boss, guys, man, great trailer. Guys, yeah. Lots of guys go through and yeah. for whatever reason are not a superstar. And then they go to the WWF and they really hit another level. Right. But. Of all of them, Steve Austin has really got to be the one that got away. Wouldn't you agree? No question. His gimmick, his character, Stone Cold, was close to what Steve Austin really is. And that Vince knew that. And I, I know the stories are that Vince gave him a list of different characters he wanted to call him. But he made that character his own. Beer drinking, you know, rebel didn't give a fuck about anything. This is who I am. Uh, and fans identified with that. And that started the attitude era in the WWE with standards and practices being what they would become in WCW, the stone cold character wouldn't have existed the way we knew it. So maybe the WCW version would have been chili McFreeze and, right. he, and he drank O'Doul's and instead right. of flipping you off, he gave you a thumbs down. Exactly. That's see a weird so, deal. It, let's go back. Let's go back and blame Turner again, which is always delightful for me to do. But again, two companies that, uh, ran business differently and it, it worked with Vince. One of the things that Meltzer wrote here was that Austin was not always the easiest to get along with. He was, he was pretty vocal about being unhappy and things. Uh, and you kind of made mention of that before and, and, and Austin has been upfront about that that he could be moody sometimes because, sure. and I think a lot of us fans forget these guys are on the road forever. They're almost never home. You know, they're traveling after the house shows each night, they're driving 300 miles to the next one. This is before all the big stars had buses. So they're piling into rental cars and driving. It's just a, a, a grind man. So I'm sure it wears on you mentally, but Austin had a little bit of a reputation in the WWF of he didn't like the creative. He would just kind of crap on it and be negative loudly about it. And of course, famously, he walked out once and, you know, that's the WWF show for another time. But do you recall any, any incidents like that in WCW that you can point to and say, boy, he was not fucking happy about this, or he had a big issue with that. No, I, I can't remember any time that he did that. Uh, again, look. You talk about the travel, you talk about all the wrestlers had to go through working every night and not having tour buses and piling into a car. Steve also got worn down because of injuries and Steve was wrestling hurt a lot and that will wear on you as well and give you a bad mood. I think just, I'm just freestyling here on him, but I never saw anything in the backstage area that says that, you know, he's really pissed off. But Steve, again, was the type of guy that you could just see in, in his facial reactions uh, that he wasn't happy about a few things. I mean, he wore it on his sleeve, but never was very vocal about it in the dressing rooms that, that I recall. 
Well, let's get to some questions from Twitter. We invited you to ask us questions and, uh, we'd like to go ahead and encourage you to do that for next week's topic. Next week, of course, we're going to be covering Halloween havoc, 1997. Uh, that really will be called what happened when, um, because we're actually going to watch the show with you. So if you'd like to participate, don't watch the show this week, watch it with us next week, Halloween havoc, 1997. We're going to give you some running commentary. We'll cover a thousand different things that happened. And it'll be a little different than this week's episode of I don't remember with Tony Schiavone. Uh, are you, are you ready for me to ask you some more questions? You don't remember the answer to Tony. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, conservative Craig wants to know what were the suits at WCW saying when stone cold caught fire in the WWF? I don't remember. Christopher wants to know, did Tony ever fear that stone cold Steve Phillips may take over the broadcasting gig? Go fuck yourself. Um, what was Tony's favorite wrestler to see Austin go against? And why was it Tom Zink? Because Tom Zink was a very handsome young man. All right. Uh, what was the <laughs> dynamic backstage like between Jeannie Clark and Steve during their time in WCW? The dynamic? I mean, were there, were they getting along good? What was the, yeah, they were, they were getting like? along quite well. Absolutely. Any good, I don't know when we'll talk about her Look, again. Any Jeannie Clark stories you can share with us? Uh, no, that, is, that Jeannie was, uh, that I, I think that Jeannie still wanted to work, still wanted to have a job, even when the things with Steve went sour. Uh, she loved the business, and I, I think she was, she still wanted to make sure she had a job. You know, know. It, it, these questions are like, like I'm in a dressing room standing there with Jeannie and Steve and taking notes about how they get along. What the fuck? I mean, I think they're just looking for you to say anything entertaining and not be a God. You're Larry Zabisco right now. You're a goddamn cigar store Indian over there. Uh, and instead of saying how you're over there saying, don't remember. I mean, <laughs> I don't remember anything. You want me to make up shit? That's what Bruce right. does. Keith Lutz okay, well, wants to know. Yeah. Well, you goddamn right. He does. Well, All right. Me, me I'm going to make know okay. that. We just killed K Fabe. We just killed the other show, but okay. Yeah. Keith Lutz wants to know, are you jealous that stone cold got to marry Deborah's boobs? Yes, I am. God damn it. And I sent Deborah a note about that. Sent Steve a note about that. And they said, fuck off. <laughs> See, this is how you get a number one podcast. We're going to win a fucking award next year. Here we go. Um, I do, I do think that the, the Jeannie Clark question is fair because we don't really hear much about Jeannie. You know, we know a lot about his relationship with Deborah, but we don't know very much at all about his relationship with Jeannie Clark. She was a big part of his wrestling career to get started. Yes, she was. And I've seen her at, uh, I saw her a couple of years ago at the NWA fan convention. And, uh, I, I think she really wanted to be an integral part of the business with or without Steve. She thought her character, lady blossom. Uh, could blossom into something. Well, I'm sure it did. Hey, uh, here's a good question from fuzz. What was the office's reaction when Steve turned up on ECW and did the Monday night will skits? Did that make its way around? Were people talking about that when he did it on ECW TV? Yeah, we were all talking about it. And there was a lot of people who were pissed off about it. A lot of people kind of laughed about it. Uh, I thought it was pretty cool because I really love Steve. Uh, but I know a lot of people were kind of pissed off about it. And I've often thought, you know, what the fuck, what's wrong with a guy trying to make a buck? Wait a minute. Wants to know in creative, who were Steve's biggest boosters and attractors? So you kind of freestyled a minute ago. You thought there was maybe something with Kevin Sullivan, right? Was there anybody ever saying, what about Steve? 
Back when he was there, Jim Ross did okay. a lot. Dusty Rhodes was one of his big boosters as well. Uh, they were, uh, and Magnum TA was as well too. Cause you know, Magnum was the one that first got in touch with him. You know, I don't know how we've made it this long and not asked this. What did Klondike Bill think of Steve Austin? Klondike Bill would look at Steve and then he'd look at Jeannie and then he'd look at Steve and then he'd come over to me and he'd say, I wonder what her panties smell like after she's walked about a mile. Uh, well, I mean, if you had to guess, what, what do you think the answer would be? What they smelled like? Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to do whatever I can to jazz this show up right now. <laughs> uh, I don't know. It's been so long since I smelled pussy. I have no idea what that smells like anymore. <laughs> oh, my God. I think I'm going to peed my pants. It's the best line in the history of the show. You waited two fucking hours to do it, but you did it. Oh, I love you, our leader. Oh, God, that's so great. In your opinion, who's the Well, that's the shoot. That's the truth. Okay, go ahead. In, in your opinion, who's the biggest star in the history of wrestling, Hulk Hogan or Steve Austin? Well, I was there for Hulk, Hulkamania, uh, and I was there for the NWO. I think that Hulk Hogan's the biggest star in the business, and Steve is tied with Ric Flair for number two. Carl Hayes wants to know, do you think if Austin would have joined the Four Horsemen, it would have been successful? That's something a lot of people have talked about because, of course, Austin always cites Flair as being his favorite wrestler. And while it may sound far-fetched on the one hand, you got to remember Brian Pillman was in the horseman. What do you think? Austin as a horseman, could it have worked? Absolutely. If we would have made the horseman mean something at that time. Remember that. What would you have preferred as a lineup? If you just had the fantasy book right now, Rick, Arn, Steve, and who would the fourth member be? It would have been Barry Wyndham. See, I would have thought you would have said Brian Pillman there, but Wyndham yeah. makes sense too. Okay. Uh, war games, 92, one of the few war games, Arn Anderson doesn't start. Instead, Austin leads off Did Arn endorsed Austin in this spot. I don't know that a lot of people have caught on to that, but for years and years and years and years, uh, Arn Anderson was Mr. War games. He was the first guy in, but here at war games, 92, not the case. Any memories of that? I don't have a memory of that, but I can tell you that Arn was in favor of it because any guy who started war games, I always thought it was like the badge of honor that you could work. And that was the badge of honor that he could work. Absolutely. Uh, here's a fun, I can't wait to ask you this because I oh, know boy. what your reaction is going to be. Jesse wants to know why did Austin grow his hair out and facial hair in 1995? <laughs> um, I'm, well, I'm, uh, we brought him in and we said, Steve, you need to grow that fucking hair out because you're kind of getting thin on top. And he said, well, if I'm going to grow my hair out, I'm going to go my facial hair out as well. And I remember Eric saying, well, whatever you fucking want to do. And then he also said that if you grow your facial hair out, then when you eat pussy, you have the aroma on it for the next couple of weeks. I don't know what's going on with us right now. <laughs> and I said, and I said, really? <laughs> and he said, yes. Oh, here's another great one for you. Are you ready? You're going to love it. I, I, I love this newfound uh, interest you have in the questions. JBL Cena fan has been listening to us from day one and tweets us very annoying questions and will annoy yeah. the piss out of you unless you mute him. Uh, he tweets, please explain the Super Brawl SNES game that was outdated when it came out and had Steve on screen, 
but not playable. Wow. Well, since you're a JBL Cena fan, we just wanted to fuck with you. And I remember when the game went out, I said, let's fuck with that motherfucker because he's a piece of shit pain in the ass. And they said, okay. Oh God. I think let's just, make the game just to fuck with him. We just trolled a guy for real. Honestly. Yeah. But I, I shouldn't say that because he may send JBL up to my house, uh, to pick on me or, or, you know, do something bad to me to bully you and put things in your butt. Bully you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's not going to do that. That's rumor in any window. All right. Um, Anything else you want to mention? I don't know. I don't, I don't think we're going to be able to beat this. Like <laughs> we're ending up with a flurry here, aren't we? You, you that, I mean, I, I, it's a shame that now we have to say goodbye because I feel like we were just now hitting our rhythm, but we're going to be full speed ahead next week because we're going to try to do something fun for you. I've fun. always loved Halloween Havoc 1997, and we're going to be with you for the duration of the show. I'll have my notes in hand. You get to hear some of the ridiculous matches called by Tony Schiavone. And if you haven't already, man, you're in for a treat with Rey Mysterio and Eddie Guerrero, aren't they? Oh, my goodness. Absolute treat. Well, uh, <laughs> thanks for saying that. I think we're <laughs> wait, wait a it was such a treat that I remember shitting my pants calling the match back then. That's how much of a treat it was. I had a hard on. <laughs> right. So you saw Rey Mysterio. You saw a peak of his face because yeah, and I got a heart on. And then they did so many great bumps. I just shit my pants. I shit my pants. Do you normally poop your pants when you have an erection? Yeah. I, you know, I don't know. Why, I have to go. I have to go back to uh, 2003. The last time I had an erection, I have to remember. What, what was happening in 2003 when it happened? Do you recall? What was I having an erection or shit my pants? Oh, did you do both at the same time in 03? Yeah. Well. Well, there was a time that I, I don't think I've told the story that did I tell you the time about me shitting on the floor at the house. We have saved the show. <laughs> I'm just going to, I'm just going to put a timestamp in the description that just says skip to two hours. Okay. Just listen to the last 15 minutes. No, <laughs> we teased it last week, but yeah. we didn't actually hear the full yeah. story. And, uh, I wish we were live in front of an audience. Cause I would say. Who wants to hear the story about when Tony shit his pants and it actually got on the floor yeah. and everyone would react, but they're not here. So let me just say, yay. Yes. We want to hear this. Okay. You have to come to one of our live shows to hear the story about me shitting on the floor at the house. How's that sound? No. Are you really want me to say it? Here? Oh, you you got, want me to you do, it? do it? We've teased it. Uh, all right. We teased it. So I'm, I'm upstairs. I taken a shower and the bugs on the bed and I've got a lot of gas and all of a sudden, I let one fly. Hang on. I feel like and, I should remind everybody that you don't okay. have bed bugs. Your dog's name is Bug. My dog, yes. Yes. My right. dog's name is Bug. And I'm talking to him, and I just, and I, I'm just out of the shower, so I'm naked. And I say, hey, Bug, you daddy's buddy. And I, I rub the top of his head, and I let one fly, and shit flies out of my ass onto the carpet. And to make this even more comical, Bug's little head follows the turd going across the air so i know lois is very particular about the carpet it's brand new carpet up there so i walk to the top of the steps and i say lois and she says yes i says there's shit on the floor up here and she said well who did it i said well she said did bug do it i said no she said did dually come up there i said no and she paused (laughs) 
bless her heart, she, she said, did you shit on the floor? I went, yes. She said, well, I ain't cleaned that shit up. I said, but it's the brand new carpet. I don't give a fuck. You shit, you clean. And that was the end of that. So I cleaned it up. <sighs> but she had me dead to rights. So after she asked to bug and shit and dually and shit, when I said no, all of a sudden the light went on in her head. Did you shit on the floor? Yes, I did. I cannot believe. Well, can I say this? You're chuckling over there, and all the slapdicks who are in their mid-30s who love us are chuckling right now. Wait till you motherfuckers get in your 50s. Just wait. You're going to shit your pants, and if you come out of the shower, I suggest you squeeze that part until you get some underwear on, or you might shit on the floor, too. Wait, hang on, hang on. Enjoy your old life as well, okay? Who's shitting after a shower? You fucking heathen. You're supposed to take a shit, and then you shower. You're doing life all wrong over there. <laughs> that makes me a heathen. Well, I, or a fucking idiot, or an asshole, or a slap. I mean, you're you're every disparaging word I can come up with. If you shower, uh, then take a shit. <laughs> Isn't this what happened when? Yeah, what okay. happened when Tony shit the floor? That's what it was. We heard you shit the bed with the podcast for the first two hours today. <laughs> So then we finished with what happened when Tony shit the floor. Actually, I'm going to name this episode. What happened when Tony shit the floor, parentheses, Steve Austin. Oh, that'll be great. We'll be over with Steve, won't yeah, we? I'm, I'm already blocked. What the fuck does it matter? <laughs> All right. Let's get us out of here, Tony. All right. Uh, thank you very much, Conrad. And hello, Slapdicks. The main event is Stone Cold Steve Austin and Mick Foley against Hulk Hogan and Hacksaw Jim Duggan. Special referee... I'm young. And now coming to the ring to make the ring announcement is Tony Schiavone. Oh, he has shit his pants. My God. Here comes Jeannie. Jeannie is running. It's Lady Blossom coming to the ring. Here comes Klondike following Lady Blossom. He's going for the underwear. He's going to, oh my God, we're out of time. See you next week, motherfuckers, when I shit the bed again on what happened when Monday on the MLW Radio Network. The rule.